Hello, and welcome to the Choose Strong podcast. I am here with your host, the current champion of the Moab 240, and the recent champ of what? The Grand Slam 200, and the Triple Crown. <laughs> welcome, Sally McCray. <laughs> <laughs> nice, babe. Yeah, that was a nice little, little intro. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you guys have all joined us today for the special episode because we're here to basically, I'm going to share all the things that I did to get you <laughs> to get first place, basically, <laughs> and how I allowed you to to win the whole thing. Yeah. So. I mean, that. this is going to be the most interesting yeah. episode we've had yet. <laughs> I'm super excited about today's episode. Um, one, to hear all of your incredible tips about yeah. how to become a champion. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> two, I I first just want to bring attention to your shirt. Yeah, look at that Your tie-dye, choose strong shirt that matches mine. And if you're watching on YouTube, you are getting a good look at this. These were gifts from our friends the tie-dye travelers on Instagram, if you do not know them, they were at every single race this year. Mm -hmm. And we became really good friends with them. They were the light and joy and just continuous positivity every single time I saw them in aid stations. And um, the day before we raced, we were at registration, we were gifted with these shirts. So we thought we would rep them today just with gratitude. Yeah. I don't know the last time I've worn a <laughs> shirt like this. Yeah. A tie-dye. Yeah. Tie-dye shirt. Let's go. Remember those uh, hyper color shirts when we were in high school? Mm -hmm. You would have to like, you could like blow on them and they'd turn a different color or uh, sweat. Yeah. <laughs> you get them wet and they turn a different color. I'm all over the place today. I got a tie-dye shirt and a camo hat. Yeah, let's... Uh, Let me know if I distract you over there. Should we... We'll do a it's different weird. episode about Eddie's fashion because our kids quite often have a um, comment or opinion about your clothes. In fact, Eddie was out with Isaiah the other day in the store and Isaiah looked over at you said, Dad, that's an outfit. Yeah, so it wasn't my best <laughs> outfit ever. <laughs> <laughs> but right now, this outfit makes me happy. I'm looking across, I'm seeing Choose Strong and I'm realizing yep. that we are at the end. We have completed what we set out to do mm -hmm. at the beginning of 2023. And it just fills my heart with so much joy and gratitude and knowing that um, it was a massive team effort to do it. But at the beginning of 2023, this really made me nervous and scared me a little bit because last year when we were doing the Choose Strong project, a 507 mile project that was uh, pretty strenuous on the body. That was a big undertaking and something that I had never done before, particularly because we, we really put those races very close to each other. So, you know, no race was I going into rested, strong. I didn't feel good pretty much for every single thing that we did, but we were writing a story. Mm. And I think this year we got to write some really cool stories. Yeah, and, definitely. Um, we more than doubled the mileage. So it came out with all the racing that we did over 1,100 miles of racing. It's uh, It really is a gift just to be sitting here right now in the upright position. Yeah, not in a wheelchair. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, that's awesome. How's your body? How are we feeling? Uh, that's a loaded question at the I moment. Know. I'd say from um, from head to toe. I am still 
in a very deep recovery mode. It takes a couple days after these 200s to sleep through the night. So um, after I raced, I only slept for three and a half hours. Even though my body is so exhausted and tired, my system is is off and um, upset. And it, it takes a lot just to relax. The, another part of that is how much pain I'm in. So this race, and we'll get into the full race story um, in a little bit. Uh, there were several sections where I knew I had to push maybe a little bit harder than I wanted to um, because I knew I was being you know, chased. And so when you're in a 240 mile race and you are trying to hammer hard for 20 or 30 mile stretches um, multiple times, yeah, you're, you know that your recovery is going to be a little bit longer. So, and this was the rockiest course, the rockiest, hardest course, um, longest stretches of flat-ish uh, running at times. And so that that just really, you know, beat up the body. So I am still in a bit of discomfort, you know, my, from knees down, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a little bit of pain, not like injury. It's just like sore, you mm. know, like I'm just sore. My feet, we'll talk about that. Um, I'd say next to Kodona, like my feet were in the worst shape out of all the races. So we just didn't let anyone know that. Mm -hmm. So I, my feet have probably been the number one thing that wakes me up in the middle of the night. Uh, they just hurt. Yeah. So we're taking care of that. As far as like internally goes, like my equilibrium is still off. I've been having Eddie drive me everywhere. <laughs> um, try to sleep throughout the day, taking lots of naps. And, you know, we, we joke about it. I know Eddie. I've there. I've had moments where I'm like, man, I just do not feel good. And then I look at him and I say, worth it. Yep. It was worth it. Yep. Like this is this is what it takes. This is what it means. What it feels like um, to go hard after a goal and and to win. Um, it doesn't always feel good, but man, definitely worth it. And I think I would have been disappointed in myself had I let off the gas at times because of the discomfort that I was in. Because there were times that I asked myself, I don't know if I can keep on pushing when I'm feeling this way. And um, it was just amazing to have such a phenomenal team encouraging me and reminding me of who I am and what I'm capable of doing. And, but also being compassionate at the same time. Like, I know you're hurting, but I know how strong you are. I know this is like the most uncomfortable thing right now, but you, you're achieving what you wanted to, you got to keep pushing. So yeah, this is just such a, a wonderful way to end the season of racing and I'm I'm just like full of gratitude. So I'm excited to dive in and share the story with um with our listeners. I always like to start the beginning of every episode to acknowledge our listeners. So if you are a brand new listener to the Choose Strong podcast, we want you to know that although we do use running stories and we talk about running, our real purpose and message here is to tell a story that parallels with life. And these race recaps that I do aren't necessarily a way to encourage you to go and run a hundred miles or 200 miles. I don't, I don't think you actually need to do those things in life. These are things that set my heart on fire. These are things that I have loved since I was a little girl. I've always loved to run and run far, but I do believe that within these stories, there's something that we can all glean for our everyday lives because we all hit hard seasons in our life. We all hit moments of discomfort. We hit forks in the road where we have to make hard decisions. And for all of us, we are going to, there's going to come a point in our life where 
we're asking what it is that we're doing with our life. What is the purpose? Who are we? And how are we making an impact on the world? And I think that we all need to be encouraged in that every single day. And to remember that just because people around you might be doing things that look cool or it looks successful, um, that doesn't mean that, that your life isn't. It doesn't mean that your life isn't full of purpose. And I think that if we all lived authentically to who we are and and what we truly love, um, we'll be so much more fulfilled. And so we just want to encourage you wherever you are in your journey, whatever it is that you're pursuing, whatever it is that that you love to go after that with your whole heart and know that the True Strong community is here supporting you and that we're right there grinding next to you. And our motto, strong body, strong mind, strong love. We want that to ring true in every single episode that you listen to. Today's episode, we're going to be doing the race recap of Moab 240, but there are very specific stories that we're going to be sharing that we hope that you can apply and uh, maybe relate to in in the life that you are living today. So we have listeners, um, is very young listeners. We're learning this more and more. We have um, youth that is listening to this episode. We have high school kids and college age kids. We have entry level career people and and people that are learning how to start a business. We have um, new parents and parents with many, many children. We have grandparents and retired people as well. I mean, that's the, our audience is very wide and vast and I think that that is something that's gotten Eddie and I really excited because we didn't want to create another running podcast. Um, I think there's enough of those. There's enough running news around there, but we wanted to create something um, very different. And so we love that you're here. Thank you for pushing play. Uh, we've also come to learn that many of our listeners are on their long run. Yes. So this is a great long run episode. We want to give a shout out. You have uh, a lot of time on your feet ahead. And so uh, we want to remind you to fuel well, to hydrate well, to remember that every step that you're taking toward the end of that long run, or if you're racing right now, um, it's worth it and that you're going to be stronger at the end of it. So those long runs are no joke. And so we love that we get to run with you today. Super and if you're cool. racing right now, pick it up, please. You are dogging it. I can tell. If you are racing right now, see that person right in front of you? Yeah. Catch, catch how, about, how about you do yourself a favor and get right on their heels? Catch them. We're going to pass now. Okay, Gap. Okay. And Barry. We are bearing. <laughs> That's where we're picking up the pace. <laughs> I love it. You know what? We actually, I wanted to share this real quick because there have been over a half a million downloads on this podcast now. And I just want to say congrats to you. Because that's huge. It's a big deal. And let me tell you, if it was just my podcast, it'd be like 14 <laughs> downloads. That's so, not true. So I'm impressed that you have so many people wanting to listen to what you have to say. It's pretty cool. Well, Eddie McRae, as humble as always, this podcast would not be in existence without you. So thank you so much, Eddie, for your hard work, um, for getting it out on YouTube. For those of you that are new to listening, we do have a YouTube channel where you can watch this with us. But without Eddie's work, he does all the editing and the production and the setting up and has built a studio here in our house out of our, our little spare bedroom. And it's just amazing what you've created. And so thank you. That hitting half a million downloads in 30 episodes is um, very exciting for us. Mm -hmm. So we're just grateful for our listeners because that has made that that possible. Yeah. Anyways, are you stoked that the Grand Slam is over? 
How are you feeling about that? Oh, man. They're all done. I know. I have been a little bit out of uh, a straight frame of mind for the last few days. I think I shared with you this morning when I was on my way to the re- sports recovery lab that it's even been hard for me to to genuinely celebrate and and reflect on everything that we did mm-hmm. um, because I've been like so out of it. In yeah. fact, we were supposed to record this podcast a couple of days ago and I just, I couldn't even think straight. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to keep on putting it off, but I, I can say sitting here, I am very happy to have accomplished it, that it's, that it's completed mm-hmm. because it felt like such a big thing and it felt like so far away Yeah, and completing this, Grand Slam of 200s. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with what that means, there is the well-known Triple Crown, which is all three of Destination Trails 200s. But when you add on Cocodona to that, they call it the Grand Slam. So it's four 200-mile races within the same year. Um, and that comes out to a span of of five months. So if you just do the Triple Crown, it's it's just a span of, um, of four months. So Doing all of that, yes, very happy that it's done. But I knew, also knew that the end of the Grand Slam would mark my off season, um, kick off the holiday season, mm-hmm. and just really put me into a different schedule in life. And I take my off season very seriously as far as how I care for my body. I spend a lot more time with friends who sometimes, you know, I, I, I tend to miss when I'm in the middle of my racing season and, and traveling. I have like a pretty solid four months where um, I'm going nonstop. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm happy just to, to slow down. I'm happy to take care of my body in a different way and to give it a break because as you know, Eddie, I'm a big dreamer. Really? And <laughs> I'm already thinking about 2024. I'm sure. Uh, we're not going to discuss what those things are today yet, but um, yeah, 2024 is already on my mind. So, yep. Uh, well, let's get into the Moab 240. Mm-hmm. And after Bigfoot, you had, what was it? Six weeks? It was like six and a half six weeks. Six and a half weeks. Mm-hmm. And you were pretty busy. You traveled a bunch. <laughs> right? Like you were, didn't have the best sleep, the best training schedule. Um, you were trying to recover. Um, talk a little bit about that leading into the Moab 240. Yeah. This is the part that, you know, to you, our listeners, I, I do like to keep things real and, and candid. And I don't, you know, I don't feel it's right just to, to try and hide, um, what's really going on in my life. Because I think sometimes when, when we ourselves are, working toward a goal and and we are looking for people that that can maybe guide us or help us or inspire us to to work hard or or take a, a stronger path. We're also kind of studying what they're doing with their life. And I I don't think that we need to assimilate other people's lives to a T. I mean that that's actually foolish. But we can look to other people and be inspired and be like, dude, I'm gonna try that. I'm I'm gonna yeah. do that. Or like, dude, that's such a good idea. Um, I know I do that. I've had some incredible mentors in my life and people that have just reached out and and helped me and, and continue to do today. So um that is very powerful f- for me. So with the platform that I have, I do have a great conviction to keep things real because um, if you've if you've read my book, um, I did grow up as a kid feeling like 
I had a, a lot of disadvantages. And I even said in the book a few times as a kid, like, it's just not fair. You know, those people have this and that, and I don't. Um, though, because those people have that money or those resources, they get the opportunity and I don't. And, you know, and that even came down to when my mom was sick and dying. Like, we never had health care. So when they found out she was um, had terminal cancer, um, it was already a death sentence. There was no getting back from that. And so as a kid trying to understand how different people having different things or, or having different opportunities, I began to think about the words that my mom constantly reminded me of. And, and a lot of that was just to work hard, be grateful for what you do have, because it's really easy when we feel like Oh my gosh, it's it's so it must be nice that they can work toward that goal. Meanwhile, I'm working three jobs and raising four kids by myself and dealing with taking care of my my sick grandparent. You know, there's it's really easy to almost be upset by other people's success or be, you know, get caught up in in jealousy and and comparison. And I know that I have been there in moments in, in my life, especially in my youth. And so one of the joys that I do have is sharing, you know, a real life with with the listeners, letting people see like I fail a lot. I like I make a lot of mistakes. And I've also chosen not to live a I guess like a typical professional athlete's life. I know we've talked about this on previous um, podcasts too, but one of the things reasons why is because um, I have such a, a strong love and passion for connecting with people and encouraging people. When you lose so much in your life, you understand what is important. And I believe that relationships are the most important thing in life, not my medals, not these accomplishments. Like, yeah, awesome winning Moab 240, but that isn't like the best part of this journey. It was everyone that was a part of it. It was being able to connect with this incredible community. Um, the stories that came out of uh, this journey, Eddie, I mean, you, you, read them every single day and mm -hmm. the way that we've been able to encourage people where they are in their life. And it, a lot of it has nothing to do with running. Yeah. Um, that has been the best part of, of this journey. And so, you know, I, I think that from a coaching standpoint and from other competitive athletes and just maybe people in the running community, they would look at what I was doing bef between Bigfoot and Moab and be like, why are you doing that? Like you are setting yourself up, um, to have a pretty bad race. Yeah. And, and I get it cause I'm a coach too. If I want someone to have the greatest success, I'm going to say, all right, take the stress out of your life. Like do what you can to, to get as much rest as possible. And, you know, really just, you know, do away with things that you don't need, need to be doing. But I think that looks different for everyone. And for me and, and how I've always lived my life, it's, you know, I, I haven't always had that opportunity to just chill and to just like wake up and just think about me and just, um, make a organic breakfast that takes 30 minutes to make and then, uh, go train for a few hours and take a nap. And, you know, my life, I, I wake up and I, my kids are the first thing on my mind, you know, and then it's the everyday family stuff that we have taking care of the house and cooking and running a business. And so for the, time between Bigfoot and, you know, Moab, it was probably the busiest of the entire year. Mm. And you and I even talked about it because, you know, 
I got third place at Lake Tahoe. 17 days later, I raced Bigfoot. And what I looked like and felt like after Bigfoot was like, it was alarming Mm. Um, just because those races were so close together and it had, had beat me up pretty good. One thing that I didn't really go into detail was that after Bigfoot, because I had raced 430 miles within 17 days, was I had a lot of nerve damage in my feet, my forefeet, all the toes there. I had a lot of problems with them. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, nothing permanent. And I didn't believe it was anything permanent. I had talked to a few people that had just reminded me like, yeah, that's that definitely is something that happens. And nerve damage does take a long time to heal. And so um, where my feet were after Bigfoot and then where they are today, that 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 nerve stuff is significantly better. But for the first three weeks after Bigfoot, I couldn't walk without discomfort. Um, you know, walking, running, jogging, doing anything. It just took a lot of focus and I had to only run like on flats. There's this one video, actually, we were in, in Chamonix. I went to Chamonix like 10 days after Bigfoot and I was wrecked, but um, I actually was supposed to race TDS, uh, which in my opinion is the toughest race out of all the UTMB races in, in Chamonix. I've done UTMB five times. I've always wanted to do TDS. It's just more rugged. And um, I had gotten an entry into TDS. How far is that one again? That one is like 96 miles, oh, 98 yeah. miles. Actually, I think it's 98 miles. So it's like it's like seven miles shorter than UTMB, but it's more rugged and steep and a little bit more treacherous, I I, I would say. Like the UTMB trail is like, that's there forever. It's it's a well-known marked course mm-hmm. that you could just follow by foot any, any time during the year. Very, very difficult. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. It's a really hard race. Uh, but... I remember arriving at in into town and knowing like, okay, I'm definitely not going to race. Like I'm having a hard time even running like a mile flat right now. I had several sponsors in town. And so I ended up doing 12 different activations um, during the UTMB week. So it was speaking, it was leading group runs, it was doing um, product testing, it was it was filming. I had some photo shoots. I mean, it was so busy. And I remember running behind Hella. Hella was doing like some little like reels and stuff. And we were on like this rocky path. And I just remember like how painful it was like to run behind him. But he like posted this one and I like was a little, a little bit further behind him. I was mm-hmm. like, cringing in pain and everyone's like oh wow you're crushing sally like she can't even keep up with you and i was like everything in me did not want to respond to people and be like do you know what i just got done doing but um but i was giggling at myself too because i'm like yeah i i can barely run on a trail um so yeah those those first three weeks i got home from bigfoot and gosh i think it was was it Two days later, I went to Leadville. Yeah. Um, Leadville, I did um, some book signing and, and an appearance there. And I crewed my very good friend, Adam Klink, from the BPN team. Then I came home from Leadville for two days. And I left for Chamonix. And I was at the UTMB week. I think it was like seven or eight days. Then I flew straight from France to Colorado for Mackenzie's first recruiting trip, college recruiting trip, which was super exciting. And I met you, Eddie mm-hmm. and Isaiah and and Mackenzie there in the airport. Yep. And that was 
so exciting. I had all my, like all my stuff from, from Chamonix. I remember all the bags and everything I had from that. Then we came home from her recruiting trip. And the next day you and Mackenzie left for Hawaii Mm, for her, um, with her team, Mm -hmm. they did a race over there. And so it was just me and Isaiah at home. And then when you guys got back from that, I went to, I did go to Austin once because I had yeah. to do a, a photo and product shoot there. And then Mackenzie had another recruiting trip in Oregon. So oh, we went up to right. Oregon and we did that. And then we came home for a few days and she had another recruiting trip at NAU. So mm. we went to NAU, but I don't, I, I traveled every single week. Yeah. So I didn't have one full week at home between Bigfoot and Moab 240. Yeah. And this this detail that I'm sharing with you, this very private inside look into my life, I'm sharing this with you because I've been at crossroads in my life where I'm like, this is not the right season. I am just too busy. This is too much. This is overwhelming. And sometimes you just want someone to tell you no, like you want an answer. I'm going to tell you, no, like, don't do this. Or you want someone to say like, yes, you can do it. Like, let's just, let's push for it. What I have learned in my life is that I would much rather try than to have not tried at all. And a lot of the things that I have done in my life, and I'm used to this, they look crazy from the outside. They look ridiculous to other people. It it sounds um, like too much over the top and I'm okay with that. And so I've also learned to be okay with other people's opinions when they don't agree with mine, Mm. when they think I'm crazy and being okay with failing. Cause sometimes I, I do stuff and I was like, oh my gosh, that was such a bad idea. (laughs) Like y'all were right. Like that was a really bad idea, but there've been a lot of times where everyone except me thinks it's a bad idea. And in my heart, I'm doing it not to prove anyone wrong. I don't feel like I need to prove anything to anybody. But if I really love something and I'm passionate about something and I I really believe in it and I, I've worked for it, I want to go for it. And it's okay if if no one steps forward with me. That's okay. And when I'm okay with uh, failing, when I'm okay with not being the popular vote, it allows me to let go of that pressure of, of that stress and just hyper-focus on the goal and what the possibility could be. What does this look like? And Moab had that kind of appeal. You know, there is a side of me that like, as a coach, I'm like, this is the most unideal buildup to a race. Mm -hmm. This, I am tired I've been going nonstop. I haven't had a solid week at home. Half of my training has been on the road. Half of my training has been on a treadmill. Most of the training has just been on a flat road trying to get my my body, you know, back to to good strong health. And yet still arriving at the start line and asking myself, but what if you mm-hmm. just believed? What if you remembered that you actually put in a lot of freaking hard training all this year? This little, these these last six weeks, yeah, they don't look ideal, but man, I dedicated myself hard. When I when I'm get out of my off season, I am all in focus, very disciplined to my training. I also have all this experience on my legs. Like I've, I've run three of these. So the question in my mind wasn't, 
oh, I wonder if I can run 200 miles. I wonder what it would feel like if I went this far. And I didn't have questions about what I would be feeling either. I know I'm be sleep deprived. I know I'm be hallucinating. I know my stomach's probably going to not be happy at some point. I know my feet are probably going to hurt. You know, I know this is going to be hard. I know it's, it's going to be a struggle, you know, mentally, physically. I know all those things. Like I've done three of these. Those were some of my greatest tools in my toolbox was the experience, was the remembering and also just believing in what was already in me. So I've had thousands of miles of training this year on my legs. I've spent hundreds of of hours in the gym. I'm not, it's the last six weeks aren't ideal, but that also doesn't mean that I've lost everything that I've worked for. It's just an unideal schedule. It's Mm -hmm. just an an ideal um, build up to a race. But what if I still acted in a way that is true to who I am. And, you know, I, I put in that work and I didn't lose that work. I never stopped dedicating myself. It just was a little messy. So that the, the build up to the race was something, you know, we didn't, we didn't share a, a ton of that. You know, I'm, I'm happy to share that now, now that it's, now that it's done. But I think my main reason in sharing that is it is okay that if you're in a season in your life when you're working towards something and everything kind of feels chaotic, you do the best with what you have. You know, for me at times, I remember when I was on Mackenzie's Oregon trip, like I had to train twice a day and it was like the lamest training, but I had to, I wanted to go to bed each night knowing that I tried my best to, to put in training that I was focused. So one of the mornings I got up at three 30 in the morning And I did, I went to the gym and I ran and I lifted for like an hour and a half. And then it was like late, like late that night, I was able to do something else again. Was that ideal for Moab 240 trading? No, but it was something. And so to the listeners, that is what is the most important thing is that you are dedicating yourself to trying. You're dedicating yourself to putting in effort. You're dedicating yourself to taking a step forward, no matter what that looks like. And then sometimes you have like these amazing weeks of training where it's like all falling together and you have more time and you have good energy and you're sleeping well. And like your schedule isn't crazy and you don't have two kids that are sick at home. And like your boss isn't breathing down your neck. Like, yeah, like sometimes it's just better. But if we only trained, if we only committed ourselves to our goals when life was smooth, when we felt great, when everything was going our way, we would probably only train about 40% of the time. Mm -hmm. And so what does it look like when you train 100% of the time, no matter the circumstance? What does that look like? I'll tell you what, when the further you go in array. So, you know, these longer distances that the road marathon, um, the 50 mile, the hundred mile, um, the further you go, the more it, it, the mental side of, of, uh, the race becomes the most prominent. And, and I, I think that is just with everything in life as, as we get older, um, we realize how powerful our brains are and making harder, you know, we've got to make hard decisions and um, we're faced with with tougher situations in life. Where our mind goes, what we believe about ourselves um, and moving forward, it really has the ability to destroy or empower us. And so working on that mental game um, means that you're working on it in unideal situations because that is great training for life. And I think that 
you know, my lead up to Mob 240 in those six weeks, I kept telling myself that, yeah, this is not ideal. Uh, this is not ideal, but I'm going to hit a lot of unideal situations during the race, which I did. I, you know, yeah. I did. These are going to be defining moments that are going to help me push through some, some really rough moments in that race because this is what I practice in my everyday life. So practice showing up no matter the season, no matter what the day looks like. It, learn to be flexible and, and to alter your path, but always keeping your eyes on the goal, always keeping your eyes on the prize. You know, you might wake up one morning and think like, yes, I'm going out for an eight mile run. And then you realize that um, your dog has just gone diarrhea all over the living room. Mm. And now that is going to take up a whole hour to clean up. You might not even want to get out, but hey, maybe during your lunch break on that day, you're able to do like a 20 minute hit session or you're able to go out for a 30 minute jog. You're able to do something. And that's what it means to pivot. Yeah. Say goodbye to the eight mile run, but still show up to do something. I don't know. Cleaning up dog diarrhea. I think that's equivalent to running like eight miles. That's that's a lot of work. It is. And the mental strength you have to have. (laughs) Mental strength. To not completely lose it. Next level. Right. Right. (laughs) So tell us about like, I know you were super busy uh, leading into the Moabs, but what about your energy level um, coming off of all of that? I know it wasn't optimum, right? It wasn't 10 out of 10. So what, what, what was it going in? Yeah, I think you and I were kind of laughing at my Koros app quite a bit. Yeah, that's right. I had to uh, dial back on the duration of my workouts in order to get full recoveries. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I was noticing. Work stress, life stress hits your body the same way uh, as like a long rim mm-hmm. or a tempo rim. Your body it absorbs stress all in the same way. It's not like, oh, I'm stressed out because of the this run. Like it does, it just, if it's stressed, it's stressed. So a lot of my training, um, I, what I decided to do was shorter, faster stuff. Mm. So I worked a lot on leg turnover. I did a lot more like interval training, a lot of flat stuff. And then I only, I'd say over the course of those six and a half weeks, I was probably only on the trails maybe 10 times. So it was, it was mainly a uh, flat, faster stuff just to, cause I, Again, like I wasn't worried about, I wonder if I can climb. I wonder if I'm strong enough to climb or to go this distance. What I was concerned about were my mechanics mm. um, because I wanted to to move well. Yeah. I wanted to be able to run fast when I knew I needed to run fast because I knew apart from all the other 200s that this race had long sections of where you could hammer. Mm-hmm. And ultimately those are were game changers for me yeah. because I studied the course. Um, I was very strategic in how I wanted to run it. I had a plan and I stick to it. And so my training needed to reflect that too. So I didn't get so caught up in like I did for Cocodona, my first one, where I did a lot of like six and seven hour long days in the mountains, Mm -hmm. you know, carrying, and I did rucking and just a lot of long stuff, getting my body used to just this duration and time on feet. I I was done with that kind of training. Now it was like, make sure that your body's mobile, make sure that your body is rested. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, getting good sleep was, was a really big deal. And so, um, and getting my body to a state where it was continually recovering well, 
I don't think I started to hit full recovery until about, I think it was eight days before mm-hmm. when I was like, okay, now I'm, now I'm recovered. Yeah. So it did take me a while and it wasn't bad. I mean, I'd say probably the first three, four weeks, I was always extremely under recovered, like that little fatigued. If you have the Coros app, you can see it's a fatigued little <laughs> stick figure and he has his hands on his knees. Yeah. That was me a lot. And mm. like, I would send it to you, Eddie, yeah. and we would just laugh. Yeah. Give us a number, energy level with mm-hmm. going into this, this race. Yeah. Energy level. Uh, I would probably say I was like at an eight out of 10, eight out of 10, pretty yeah, good. which I, th- I thought was pretty good. Yeah. I always wonder, I'm like, oh, I wonder what it would feel like if Sally was a hundred percent going into a race. Yeah. Like 10 out of 10 mentally though. Um, I feel like that is a strength of mine. Yeah. Even if my body is feeling like a six out of 10, seven out of 10, mentally, I know how to be an 11 out of 10. Yeah. Well, I was trying to, okay. So when we flew into Salt Lake and drove from Salt Lake to Moab, um, on Wednesday, check-in was Thursday, race was Friday. You had a lot of like relaxed energy. You were singing, <laughs> dancing, right? Like you I were, was. you were feeling so pretty good. Now, was that part of like, hey, I'm I'm feeling good, like I, I had that six weeks, my energy level's at an eight, you know, uh, or was that like, hey, I got one more race and I'm done? Like, is it kind of like all of that put together? Is that why you were happy and, and dancing? <laughs> Not that you don't ever just are happy and dancing all the time, but. Well, I feel like that, yeah, there was a lot of joy. I was so excited to Moab. Moab is so yeah. beautiful. You and I were like we had that long drive from Salt Lake to Moab and we were just having like a fun car ride together and we were singing. I was very specific about my taper Mm -hmm. and was only, only letting myself run for like 30 minutes at a time. So I am naturally high energy, as you know. So I did have a lot of pent up energy, which felt great. Yeah, Uh, That was, it it felt good to go into the race knowing like I've saved up like Mm -hmm. this energy. So yeah. And just, it, it was a celebration. This race, unlike all the other ones, I had a a little secret goal. I had thought when I first signed up for him, I thought, dude, how cool would that be to win the last one? And that was just a little precious thing that I, I, I didn't share with people because it was so precious to me. Um, also, you know, the races have been, you know, I've, I've dealt with a, a lot of challenges and, you know, with a goal that big, like I wanted to keep it within myself and, and in a way, I guess, protect it. I didn't want it to be something that everyone talked about. And so for me, the, the main focus was like, let's finish this strong. Mm -hmm. Um, let's like go out there and just see what we can do, how well we can run. But in my heart, I was like, I want to freaking win this. And that was my, I mean, I had a whole strategy, like the way that I studied the course, like everything that I was doing in the weeks leading up. I'm a really big, very big on studying. I, I think that is maybe kind of a lost component for a lot of athletes. And this is every sport. Uh, this is every hobby that you're into. It is so important to study. It is important to do research. And I'm not talking about just like listen to whoever on social media. That That's not studying. Like it's it's really getting down to the science and the history and the facts about what it is that you're doing. And 
So that's what I I did in the weeks leading up to Moab. Like I really studied the course. I studied the aid stations and the descriptions. I love looking at pictures and videos because I'm a very visual person and I'm really good at taking visual snapshots. I can remember things. I wouldn't say I have a photographic memory, but I'm pretty good at remembering stuff when I want to Mm -hmm. and kind of use it to my advantage. And so um, this was... One of those races, uh, really similar to Badwater. I talked about this the year that I won Badwater. Um, I studied so much for that race. And ultimately, that's what helped me win. Uh, all the little like pieces, You're standing at a start line with knowledge, th- those are power tools for you. When you understand a course and how it goes, you then are also able to craft a strategy that you can trust in. And I think you and I had that conversation right before I went to the start line. I told you, I was like, I have a strategy Mm -hmm. and I'm nervous about following through with it because it's going to require me to be humble, Mm -hmm. to be patient. And I don't want to do those things because I'm not a humble or patient person at all. But if I stick to my strategy, I think I can win. Yeah. And so we're obviously, we're going to be having a different episode to talk about the differences and, and strategies of, you know, the various, uh, races that you did and yeah. what you took from each of them and how you applied, you know, that knowledge. Yeah. To an the next overview one. of the 200s. I like that idea of where, of doing a different episode that talks about how to train and execute a successful 200, like what we learned, the takeaways. Yeah. That'll be a, a separate episode. Cause I, I know a lot of the questions that came in people asked about that, but yeah, we definitely want to keep this one focused on the Moab. Yeah. So knowing that we'll get into all of that in a different one, but for this one, uh, what was that strategy? So the strategy for this one, I had two words, which is patience and wisdom. And it was like PW, like Mm -hmm. Eddie and I, you know, I know you and I talked about that was PW. I have to keep those. And I think patience and wisdom are probably like the most unsexy you know, things like when we think of someone being a strong athlete and being a badass, like, you you know, you don't think of, oh, they're so patient, but those are incredibly powerful. And being wise to discern when to push, when to pull back, when to relax, not to overreact. It takes, yeah, that, that takes a lot. Mm. And so I knew that studying beforehand would help me be patient would help me be wise. And that having the experience um, under my belt already, I needed to first and foremost, look at all the areas where I had failed and the patterns that um, were my weaknesses. And so I looked at all the races before, and that's how I came up with the strategy for Moab. And I said, well, I am going to not be concerned about racing for the first 140 miles. Mm -hmm. And saying that out loud sounded crazy, sounded, uh, you know, really risky. But in my mind, I thought, can you imagine if I felt great at mile 140? A hundred miles is a long way to go. So even if, you know, there was a girl five hours ahead of me, I could catch her because we have a hundred miles to go. Yeah. And talk about how that strategy played into kind of the, the course Mm -hmm. of how the course was laid out to knowing that the last hundred was maybe a little bit more runnable than Mm -hmm. the first part. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really good. So the goal was, I wasn't going to go out with the front pack and try to be like out front. 
I was, so I was just going to kind of chill, but I, but it also wasn't, I wasn't going to treat it like just a training long run and like get so far back that I didn't even know what what was going on. So the goal was like, Sally, you don't need to be in first place. Like you don't need to be first. You don't need to worry about what other people are doing. And I am very much that athlete. I know because we have spot trackers and you, Eddie, were getting so much comments. People are like, oh my gosh, they're chasing her down. They're right on her back. And it's like, I don't care about that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And also in these races, if someone is three, four, five miles behind me, I can't even see them. Yeah, it's a like, long time. I, I can't even, they, that is so far away. And three, four miles in a 50K could be like 30 minutes, but yeah. three, four miles in a 240 mile race can be like an hour and a half. Especially after they've ran 200 uh, miles, yeah, 150 yeah, miles. For some people, that's two hours. Right. So I think that's something that, that you learn too with these races. If someone is, is three miles behind you and you only have 20 miles to go, that's going to be really hard for them to catch you. If you're moving, if you're both moving at the same pace, like someone either needs to like start hammering super hard or someone just needs to completely stop. Mm -hmm. And, um, otherwise it's, it's just not going to happen. So I did, I I think racing so many 200s gave me that confidence too. I understand how these things play out. I understand, you know, in Tahoe, we still had about 60, 60 miles, 60, 70. Yeah. I think it was like 65 miles to the finish line. And the girl was an hour ahead of me. Yeah. And I, I, at that moment, I already knew I was gaining on her. Mm -hmm. And so I did the math really quick. I love doing math when I run and I knew I was completely 100% confident that I would catch her. Yeah. And so, and I did, but it took me 20 miles to catch her. Mm-hmm. So, but I knew there was enough miles. I calculated the pace and like what she was doing. And um, yeah, it becomes a game. I mean, these 200 milers are very much, they're like video games. Like you have to come up with like what tools to use and what strategies, when to push. And so, yeah, the strategy from the start was do not worry about racing until mile 140. Mm-hmm. Now I I think I was in first for a while. I didn't I didn't know it and I didn't really care. I had, you know, even said to the crew too like it's it's totally fine like if I get past. But I'm always aware. So I'm I'm aware of who's around, how far people are. So when I came into mile 17, I think that and and the two other girls, Anne and L, I I don't know if it's LE, but or Annie, <laughs> but, um, and I'll just say Ann and L, um, phenomenal athletes. Mm-hmm. And, um, if you followed this race on the spot tracker, you, you could see that too. We were all frog hopping e- each other. Um, pretty much the, especially the last 120 miles. We, yeah, were, yeah. we were going, we were all over the place, but, um, these women are accomplished, strong runners, very gritty, I mean, it, yeah. incredible. There are times in the race people would give me updates about what was going on and then to see them rise back up and push so hard. I was like, this is a freaking rad race. Mm. Like, I love that this is happening. I love that um, we're giving people who are following along like this awesome entertainment. And, you know, I, I love the race. I love competition. I uh, That's just 
kind of who I am. Like, I, I think we're better athletes. We're going to move better and faster if we challenge, if we bring yeah, it, if we bring definitely. our end game. So I was very happy to have that. Um, I know for some of us, we're thinking that, oh my gosh, it's so stressful, but it's like, that's, that's what a race is. Yeah. <laughs> like you want people out there chasing you because it's then going to push you to push harder. Mm-hmm. And so I think I was a better athlete out there because Ann and Elle are such phenomenal athletes. Yeah. They, they, and they deserve that, that recognition, you know, what they did out there. I think actually it was L's first 200. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Think right. um, just amazing. I know Anne had, had been out there before. I think she'd done that race with her husband in, in years yeah, think, past, but yeah. Tahoe um, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. One of those. And all of our team, like our crew and pacers, everyone, uh, knew some of their pacers or who they were connected with. So that was, that was kind of cool. Yeah. But yeah, so that was the goal was to not race until mile 140. And then there was a couple sections in there that I knew I would need to push the ultimate goal of, of winning no matter what. So I was prepared to, I was prepared mentally to go through any discomfort I already told me there is nothing that will happen to me out there that I'm not ready to push through. Mm-hmm. Obviously to the listeners, um, you know, I, I say my word is wisdom too. If I had a broken leg and a bone hanging out, like, yes, like we're not, yeah. that's just dumb. That's foolish. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's not necessary. If I have rhabdo, we're not pushing through that. So that, you know, critical injuries are, that's not wise. And, um, I would never want my children to push through things like that, but you know what? Like, when if things are just hurting, if the stomach doesn't feel great, you have a headache, you're barfing, you got diarrhea, you got bad blisters, like those are some superficial things that like, yeah, they're horrible. Yeah. Um, I feel like most <laughs> people that just based on what I've seen in the aid stations now deal with some gnarly yeah. stuff, right? Foot stuff, mm-hmm. stomach stuff sleep deprivation. So how do you, I maybe speak real quick to the people that are just lining up to maybe a 200 mile race and they're standing at the start line. And I think you were talking about earlier where, you know, I'm about to enter the next few days of pain. Mm-hmm. Like I'm about to go through some stuff. Yeah. Like what, what do you do mentally to get prepared to like take that first step to go into it? Uh, maybe the, for the first time, now that you've done it a few times, you, you have some probably tools to, um, that you call upon, but like, what if someone's doing that for the first time? There, there's two main things. First and foremost, before you even sign up for the race, you have to accept and acknowledge that great discomfort is a part of what you're about to do. When you accept it as part of the race, you aren't so surprised you're taken aback yeah. by it or offended by it. Mm. It's interesting how sometimes athletes can be like, well, it just wasn't my day. And like, why does this always happen to me? And yeah, like, yeah. this sucks. And like, or they'll start to blame their crew or something else or the race. And it's like, this is literally a part of it. Mm. So, which is also why I have mad respect for every single person on the start line. Totally. Every person on the start line goes through significant discomfort to get to the finish. They might be out there for a handful of hours longer, but we are all doing the same course. Mm -hmm. We are all traveling the same distance and undergoing a lot of discomfort. So it doesn't matter if you win or you're, you're dead last. This is a courageous undertaking to put yourself through. Remember we, we saw, I can't remember. 
remember her name, but we met someone the day after, mm-hmm. uh, the morning we were going to go get breakfast afterwards. And, and she was part of the race. She said, congratulating you. But she said, you know, I, I tapped out after 117 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And as if that was like, yeah, I'm not like, mm-hmm. I, that's not good. Right. Like you just went 117 miles. And of, that's what I brought up to her because yeah. she had tears in her eyes and, um, I gave her a big hug and I said, I, first and foremost, hope that you can celebrate what you did. Mm -hmm. And this is like, sometimes can be the great um, downfall in, in these distances is that those who stand at the start line and they, they're like, I only made it 140 miles. I only made it 98 miles. I'm like, do you hear what you're saying? That's ridiculous. How far did you go? Yeah. Like, what did you set yourself up to do? That is incredible. Most people will never, ever, ever even sign up for race half that distance. And so you have to celebrate the miles that you ventured. You Mm -hmm. have to celebrate all that training. You have to celebrate the courage that you had to stand at that start line because Mm -hmm. it's huge. And not finishing a race, having a DNF, that does not take away from the value of who you are as an athlete. It's just a stepping stone into what you're going to be doing next. Mm -hmm. And I've had enough DNFs to know that. Some of my worst races have been right before I've accomplished something great. Mm. And it's I'm I'm grateful for that because you remember that feeling, you remember the lesson you learned. And so it's just you're constantly moving. But if you can keep that mindset even when you win, that awesome, I won. Okay, what's next now? Yeah. I'm gonna take this win and build upon it. You don't only build when things are successful, you have to build when things have fallen apart because both things reveal something about you. And in this race, I was able to witness a lot of amazing things from the athletes around me. Cause I got to run with a lot of guys yeah. um, in the beginning. I never got to run with a female. <laughs> oh, yeah. There was never a, a moment I did, but I did run with a lot of, uh, a lot of the guys and shared some amazing miles and stories. And I was very grateful for that. And Felt like I just had a good band of of brothers out there and nice. and guys that were encouraging me and yeah it was it 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 was but it's it's cool to see what they're doing mm-hmm. to see how they're handling the discomfort to see like and to listen to their mental fortitude and how they're working through stuff and and just their current mental state but also how we're helping each other in that too. Yeah. You know, you get to remind people when you pass them or they pass you like dude you are doing awesome. Like you might not feel it but we're at 100 mile 28 dude like mm-hmm. you you're doing amazing. So the first thing is you're you line up You've yeah. already recognized that, mm. hey, I'm going to go through some Are we getting stuff. into the start of the race now? Are yeah. we finally giving the people what they want? you said there was two things. So <laughs> then there was a second one. What's the second one? Oh, yes. Number two is being grateful hmm. for those challenges. You know, I've I've said this so many times in multiple podcasts, not even just here on Choose Strong podcast, but I've, I've said it in my book. These are structured recreational activities where we are given the opportunity to be in discomfort is a way to grow, is a way to become better, is a way to learn and to reveal things about ourselves that we don't get to see in everyday life. But these are not the the hardest things you will do in life. Mm-hmm. No matter how much pain that I am in in a race, I remember that all the time. This is, this is not the painful part of my life. This is not pain and suffering. 
when people talk about like, oh my gosh, like, you know, I want to do this race so I can experience that pain cave so I can go to that hard place. In my mind, I'm thinking like, I could give you a long list of things to do in your everyday life that are far worse, mm-hmm. where, that will get you uncomfortable really quick, that will make a lasting impact for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. that will that will create a character in you that will impact people around the world, not a race. Because if if these 200-mile races, if these 100-mile races are the only thing that are going to get us to reveal a stronger side of ourselves or to reveal who who we're made of, then that means it's very limiting. Mm-hmm. And I, I simply can't stand on a message that only limits to those that are able to afford to do these races. These races are expensive. They're time-consuming. And not everyone is even able to, to do these physically. And so I love to use these races as more of a parallel to remind people that, you know, the hardest things in life many times come down to our relationships with people, learning to forgive somebody, learning to love people who are hard to love, um, giving our time and resources to those that are in need, you know, doing things out of the goodness of our heart and not putting it on social media, making sacrifices for things that maybe we love or that we want to do in order to lift other people up. You know, those are real sacrifices. Those are real challenges, standing up for what is good and what is right. And I know that that hits like pretty deep as we're talking about like a race, but that really is at the core of my heart and why I feel like I'm able to push through so much discomfort in a race is because I have experienced massive physical discomfort in my real life and very uncomfortable situations in my real life. And when I'm out there on the course, I tell myself, this is something I signed up for. Mm, yeah. This is something that I know how to work through. Mm-hmm. I know how to push through this. And at any moment, I can step off this trail and it will be all done. Mm-hmm. At any moment, if I want to tell someone, I just can't take this anymore. This is too much. There is a bed for me. There's some hot soup. There's a medic with a blanket. And I have my wonderful husband in in his car driving up that's going to put me in that car and drive me back to the hotel. At any moment, whenever I want, I can make it all go away. And I'll tell you what, in real life, in real tough situations, in real pain and suffering, we are not allotted that. Mm. We're not allotted for it just to stop for the the difficulty to just go away. And so I think that remembering these races as opportunities to grow, as opportunities to push through something that I can then turn around and use in my real life and use in my real everyday life, that's a gift. Yep. And it's not easy to keep that mindset though for so long. Yeah. I think I told you there's always a point in these races where I'm so delusional. I, I don't even know what's up and down, what's mm-hmm, right or left. Mm-hmm. So hyper-focusing on that greater goal is something that becomes more difficult as, as it gets harder. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the actual Moab 240 race now. Mm-hmm. We had a 12 p.m. start mm-hmm. on Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about what, because it was typically a, a morning start, right? And now they changed it to 12 yeah, typically this race starts at 6 a.m., which changing it by six hours, it, that changes the race. Yeah. It changes where you arrive at certain things. It changes the finishing time. Um, they also decided to add on 15 miles and 4,000 feet of climbing. So that is 
uh, as Jeff Browning said, an addition could be up to an additional five or six hours yeah. onto the finishing time. So for someone that's competitive, that's a little rough too, because you're looking at course records and you're hoping that there will be a little asterisk next to the finishing time so that people understand this is not the same race that everyone else has run. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're adding on many, many hours and you, you feel that. And, and it was the same thing that happened at, at Tahoe 200. Yep. You know, you add on that race was supposed to be 206 miles and it came out to 220. That is a lot of, of, yep. of time added. And so when you have race time goals in mind and now suddenly you have to run extra, it, it yeah, it kind of throws a wrench for a moment. Um, starting a noon start that throws you off a little bit too, because for those that are listening that like to race, it is nice just to get up in the morning and get that race going. So um, when it's kind of strung out throughout the day, it makes you a little bit more anxious. And, you know, it start, the heat's starting to, to pick up as well. And so it was a little bit hotter when we started. And yeah, and even even the finishing time, that that made it, had it been six hours earlier, I would have finished in the daytime. Yeah, and like, true. Um, so I think this was, you know, once again, but I laughed because I was like, this has been like, the signature of every race this year. Like there's more miles added and there's like a whole new thing thrown into it. So I, I need to be flexible and just receive it for what it, what it is. Yeah. Selfishly for the crew. I love the 12 PM start, Yeah, but that's just, that's just me. But anyways, (laughs) uh, so let's talk about that first section. The first section was about 17 miles Mm -hmm. and, uh, talk about that section. Yeah. I love that section. We took off, um, we, the start and finish, this is a loop course. So we start and finish in the same spot and, um, it starts kind of like in this RV camping area, really pretty. You have a view of the rest. Red Rocks, but you start out on a road and we actually ran on the road for the first three or four miles, I would say. Mm-hmm. And then you hit like the, um, like the foothills of, of the Red Rocks and you start kind of, um, ascending into the Red Rocks, the elevation. So the altitude was also something that I, um, I had to take into, into consideration. And, um, for those of you that have been following along on this journey, I've shared a little bit more and more about how just naturally and just always I have some, some breathing issues. I don't take an inhaler or anything like that, but when I'm in altitude for a certain duration of time, my lungs exasperate. And then if it's freezing temperatures, it makes it um, even worse. So at some point I get a bronchial reaction and I think Drew and Tyler, uh, they're, they're out there filming, but you'll probably see that in the film again. So we, you know, we start at like 4,300 feet and then we immediately like start going up and, and I'm realizing pretty quickly, like, okay, like this is, this is going to be a little bit, I'm going to have to run a little bit slower right now just to ease into this altitude. And because this race is so long, um, I need to stick to my plan of being patient and and wise because I actually really loved that first 20 miles. I felt like the first 20 miles was like, you know, put this in air quotes, runnable. It wasn't like super steep climbs. There was like it was rolling a lot. And then maybe like, you know, you maybe had like a couple hundred feet of like a bigger climb, but then it roll and then open up to like a really beautiful meadow. Um, I got to run with and- Andrew uh, Glaze. If you guys know who Andrew Glaze is, um, he's pretty popular on social media, but great guy. And we shared a lot of miles together that really helped just pass the the time and 
he has such a good natured heart and really, really sweet. So we ran a lot together the those first 20 miles. And I'd say the terrain overall was fairly, I'd say like 50% was like smooth, but then the other half, like you could definitely tell it was rocky. And by rocky, it's like some parts were like gravel, so smaller rocks. And then other parts were just like baseball size rocks, like just kind of scattered everywhere. Like you could, you could definitely like work around them. So you had to be hyper-focused on where you were stepping. I don't think I've ever tripped so much. Like I never fell. It was kind of, you know, you like trip and then you like do a couple quick steps after you trip to catch, catch yourself. yourself. I did that probably 10 times just in the first like 20 miles. Cause it was really easy as you're like scooting along, like on a smoother ish section, there's still like rocks everywhere. And so if you're just not paying attention or you're just lost in conversation, it's easy to like clip a toe. So I, I clip my toe quite a bit um, in that first section, but it was a little warm. I, my goal for that one, I think Eddie and I, we talked about this, like was eating, just eat really well. And I, (laughs) looking back, I probably ate too much. Um, I was pretty much eating the entire time. You name it, I was eating So there was a aid station that I was not allowed to go to called Hidden Valley, eight miles in. Yeah. And I was able to see you at mile 17. So you came in and you said that you had a banana sandwich and some Mm -hmm. watermelon at the other one. Yeah. Uh, And then a peanut butter and those, what are those jelly froze balls or whatever, like a package of those. Yeah. And then, so that was at mile eight. And then when you came into me. And I'd had some gels. Yeah. You had two gels Mm -hmm. and you had with me, you had the broth. And I had G1M. Yeah. A couple bottles of G1M. Two G1M bottles. Yep. Actually more because I filled up another one at that aid station. That's right. Yeah, you're right. I filled up two of them. So I had like four bottles of G1M. That's right. I had a sandwich and I actually had a couple bananas. Okay. um, Because I shoved one also in my pack and ate one in the aid station. Yeah. So then when you came to me, you had broth and mashed potatoes, Mm -hmm. banana chips, and you drank a LaCroix and you left with like Trader Joe's pumpkin bar Mm -hmm. and uh, two more Go Gels, Mm -hmm. as well as two more G1M bottles. Mm -hmm. So you were uh, really, talk about that. You Mm -hmm. were going into that as part of your strategy where you wanted to fuel up like a lot, right? Like mm-hmm. to keep eating. And how, how was that after the first, first aid station? Um, so after passing mile eight, I, I felt amazing and I was hard pressed on, especially after Bigfoot and Tahoe. The reason why I, and people have, this is a very big question. People have asked like, why can't she get her stomach right? And it's cause I was sick at both of those. Yes. So it is difficult. You know, the Tahoe film, I didn't want to make how sick I was. I was very sick. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to make that the focus. Mm-hmm. It just would, I think it would have taken away from the film, Yep. but I finished that race. I had to go on a couple of medications. My last round of medication was the night before Bigfoot. And so that was an unfortunate timing and I ended up getting sick again. So Bigfoot and Tahoe, that is why the stomach was great. Cause Cocodona, my stomach was amazing. It was like iron stomach. And I was eating the same way that I did when I started Moab. So typically I don't have such bad stomach issues. So Cocodona 250 was amazing. I ate everything, pizza, quesadillas, sandwiches, like Mm -hmm. 
it, it was great. And so I was really confident going into mob. I'm like, I'll just do the same thing I did at Cocodona. Um, I had no doubts that I was going to feel amazing. So I ate a lot and it is impossible to be ahead of calories in these races. Like you, you simply can't eat enough. Yeah. And so my goal is just graze, like just keep grazing and grazing and grazing. And so the first, I'd say like 20 hours, probably I was taking in a lot of calories. I felt really good, very energized. The calories also help when you are cold and when you're in altitude and when you're sleepy. So all those, if you're feeling all those three things in a race, you have to eat because calories will keep you warm. They, they warm up your body. The calories also keep the, the energy level high. So if you're sleepy, like eat, and then in altitude, it's harder to eat. And so, you know, that kind of wrecks things too. And so at least try to get liquid calories in when you're in the altitude. So I, I don't really know where, what happened, like what triggered the stomach issues, but suddenly it was just out of the middle where I just started throwing up hmm. and my only thought was, and, and I didn't freak out, like vomiting doesn't freak me out. I know it does for some people. When I first started in ultras, it did. Like I was freaked out. I remember running my second 50 miler at altitude and I, someone gave me like cheesy potato soup. It was the dairy. Like it just like did not do well with me. And I um, was in the hundred K race and I dropped down to the 50 mile race. Cause I was so freaked out about vomiting. I was like, this is terrible. This is a sign. Like I'm going to die, you know, but a lot of times like vomiting can be good. It's just your body resetting. So that's the way I took it. I was like, dude, I ate way too much. Like my, my stomach was full. Mm -hmm. Like I overdid it. And so then I thought, well, this, the, Vomiting is probably good then. Like, we'll just give our body a reset. And I know what to do with a reset. So if you vomit, um, just sip water. Like, give yourself like 30, 40 minutes. Don't take in any food. I know that's not ideal, but you have to. Like, you slow slow down, sip on, sip on water so you get a little bit of some hydration in there. Your system's upset. It's stressed out. By slowing down too, you're, you're giving it a little bit of a break. You are going to pick up. So I did that. So I did a, a really good reset. And I was like, I'm going to be okay. And then I think I, I think that's when, around the time when I picked up Sarah. So now at mile 60, 68, 68, it's like two or three o'clock in the morning. I see you again since mile 17. Mm -hmm. And I think at that time I wasn't eating well. You did have more broth and potatoes with, with mm -hmm. me, but it, that wasn't, I think that's all I could get. Cause yeah, and so you had smooth. a little bit of LaCroix. Yeah. So at that point, my stomach wasn't great, but, but I knew that, so we mix, we get mashed potato, instant mashed potatoes yeah. and you mix it with broth. So Eddie, you were heating that up. Yep. Every time I did, every time I saw you, you had a, a little jet uh, boil and just, yeah, you, mm -hmm. you mix it in and have it nice and hot for you when you come in. Mm -hmm. You put, I think you got, you, you were putting it like in a, what did you put it in? Oh, I like put a, it, I put it just in a, like a Camelback mug. Yeah. yeah. Camelback mug. So it would stay hot. Stay hot. Yeah. 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 And, because I, I mean, it's hard to know, like when you're coming in and I wanted it be, to be done when you came in and mm -hmm. hot. Uh, so I would typically, yeah, have it done, you know, probably 30 minutes before and just put it in there and keep it hot. 
So this is actually a really great nutrition hack. The chicken broth has a lot of sodium in it. So mm-hmm. you're getting some some saltiness in there. And then you mix it with the potatoes. And the potatoes have great calories. Mm-hmm. They've got iron in there, some other nutrients. Um, but very easy on the stomach because it's smooth. It's yeah. just this creamy, smooth. And I actually was able to eat those, I think, every single time I saw you, even when I wasn't feeling well. Yes. I Yeah, I literally had them every... Like I saw you seven times and mm-hmm. I had them every made time. up every time. Yeah. I think there was one time you didn't take it, but because oh, okay. I was pretty pissed. But I'm like, dude, I yeah. made it for you. You didn't even take it. <laughs> no, uh, but yeah, I think six, six of them you did. You took okay. them. Yeah. So we, so I came in, got Sarah and I don't, I don't think that I was, I don't remember eating very much with Sarah. So Sarah Incredible pacer. I really, I want to give a shout out to every pacer. And yeah. Talk about that. Cause crew. a lot of people had a question about how did you choose these pacers mm-hmm. and where they were, you know, stuck in yeah. at what point, like talk about that. Yeah. So Sarah Ostawiski is like an incredible athlete. Yeah. She won Coca Dona 250. Mm-hmm. We became friends um, over a podcast with Joe Corsione, who is also one of my pacers out mm-hmm. there. Just an amazing human. If you don't follow her, please do. She's had an incredible year. She just got signed professionally and offered to pace me at Moab. It was shortly after Coca Dona. And I was like, I would love that. Yeah. Sarah is an incredible mountain runner. So I knew that she would be a key person to have in the beginning when one, I was still relatively um, fresh, but also I knew it would be the start of like some of the biggest climbing in the race. And so I felt like the, the pacing sections were weird. Like you could only pick up a, like you could grab a pacer at certain spots, but you can only like let them go at certain sections. So like Sarah had to do 47 miles. Like there was, if you were going to pace this section, you pretty much had to run a 50 mile race. Like it was insane. Mm -hmm. And so I knew Sarah had the fitness, the strength, and I thought this is a perfect section for her. It did turn out to be one of the toughest sections of the entire race. And so she was so strong um, in that. And so choosing Sarah for this spot it was very specific. And this is also when, when Sarah picked me up, um, this is also where I got past and it was really cool. I know people want to know about how all this like played out. So as we came in, um, and I don't know, Eddie, if you remember this, when I picked her up, I don't think that Elle was that far behind me. No, she wasn't. Cause so you came in first and then yeah. you were in there for a total of 16 minutes. So you sat down, we gave you some food. Oh yeah, food. I saw her come in. Yeah, and she came in while you were <clears throat> so, sitting. So here's a little like key, and I'm totally fine like sharing all this stuff. I know that athletes, they don't like to share these kind of things. And it could be one because they, they don't want it to be, you know, translated any differently or they feel like, oh, those are like my secret tools or uh, my secret weapons. But I've been in this sport so long and especially as a coach, man, I, I love like sharing this stuff. I think it's it's really fun. I am a communication studies major. So um, from the time even before I went to college, I love just studying human behavior. I love studying people. I just love people, relationships, how we connect, how we communicate. And I believe one of my strengths is studying nonverbal communication as well as verbal communication. So since I have become competitive, that is something that I do. So I 
I watch like a hawk um, when I'm racing people. I watch how they interact with their crew. I look at their faces, the tone of their voice. Um, I can always tell when when someone is putting on a show um, or trying to hide something. And so when I came into this aid station, I watched very closely how, how Elle came in and it was a good sign for me. Mm. So we were so early in the race and from my understanding, I could tell that she was probably pushing really hard to catch me and was so excited. So she came in and she was just, you know, jumping up and down. I'm so happy to be here, like just a few feet from me, super like high energy. And but you could tell she wanted to get in and out really fast, too. Mm-hmm. And I looked at my watch and I looked at Sarah and I just smiled and I was like, I love that that's how she's feeling right now because we're so early in the race. Mm -hmm. And if the energy to push hard and race this early on is, is there, then that can only be an advantage for me when my purpose is I'm not going to, I'm not even going to be concerned about racing for another 80 miles. Yeah. This is mile 68 and you're not going to, you're thinking 144 is when you're going to start. Yeah. 140. Yeah. 140. Yeah. I also knew, I mean, Elle is a phenomenal athlete and we all have our different strategies and we all have our different um, ways of racing. And you have to remember too, there's a lot of athletes out there that are incredible at racing wire to wire and winning. Mm -hmm. And so I'm also respectful of that too. Like sometimes you're just not the better athlete. Like the person that's pushing hard the entire time and winning is they're better than you. Mm -hmm. And so that was also the side of me where I had to just trust my strategy because I'm like, I'm not that kind of athlete. Elle could be that kind of athlete that maybe that's what she's doing. She's just going to push, 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 push all the way through and freaking crush me. That's where that patience and wisdom really had to come in and trust that. I think we have to humbly accept what our strengths are. And I don't always like doing that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I want to be the athlete that like leads from the start and no one can ever catch me. Mm -hmm. Like, but my best races of my career have not been that Mm -hmm. I've won races that way in in my past, but I, I don't feel like those are, are, have been like my most proud performances. Um, I know as an athlete, my greatest strength is always the back half of the race. And I have a little saying, the further I go, the stronger I get. Mm -hmm. And I think a part of that has to do with harnessing patience and humbly accepting where my strengths lie. And that's not easy because I I think I am a really prideful person and, you know, I want to be out front winning the entire race. So I remember looking at Sarah and just like kind of relaxing into that and saying, I'm just, I'm going to trust myself. But what I'm, I, I studied that whole situation like so hard and we took off. She, we, we took off out of the aid station first, but I knew that she would be very close behind us and it wouldn't be long before she would probably catch up to us. If so, so I, I did a little gamble. My guess was that I would leave and that she would carry that energy to chase me down. And I didn't know who her pacer was or, you know, what, 
you know, what that kind of relationship was too. Cause I think that has a lot to do with it. I think you have to be really careful about which pacers you use. So if you have an ambitious, like super fit pacer that is also very competitive, be very careful about putting that person at the beginning because they can actually push you a little bit too hard and destroy mm. your race. That's the person you want at the end. Yeah. It's like, you can do it. You can push. You still got time. I believe in you. Right. So Sarah, I think is an incredibly patient, very wise, mm -hmm. well-balanced athlete. Yeah. Like she's amazing. So I knew that she was perfect for that yeah. too, that she wasn't going to get me all overly hyped up and like, come on, come on, come on, you know? So we left and I think it was probably, we kind of meandered through like this field. It was like pretty like easy running. We settled into really good conversation. And then it was maybe like hour and a half, two hours later, like you could start to see a little bit of like civil light. And I, I think at one point Sarah had turned around and she could see really far behind like a headlamp. And we, we guessed that it was Ellen, her pacer. Mm -hmm. And then we were about to hit a road section and this road section was a couple miles long. And again, this is just, this is the fun part of racing. I love this stuff. I knew that Elle was pushing at this point to catch me, but I also thought it would be fun to play a little game. And I thought, well, if she's going to push to try and catch me, I'm going to make her run harder here. And, but it, I will make it so that it's not hard for me, but that she will hopefully use a little bit extra energy than she needs to. And again, it's just, it's just strategy. Mm -hmm. So we get on the road and I tell Sarah, like, let's just pick up the pace a little bit and make it a little bit harder for her to catch us. But I was fine. Like, at that point too, I was like, I'm, I don't want to be pushing hard and like racing right here. So I was, I knew she would pass me and I was, had so much peace about that, but I thought I'm going to make her think that I'm trying to race her right now. So we get on the road and I pick up the pace just a little bit and we do that probably for like 20 minutes and then I genuinely really did have to go to the bathroom. So I stepped off. We get on the, we're on the trail now and I step off the trail and I go to the bathroom at that time that I was going to the bathroom, Elle passed me. Now I told Sarah, I was like, I, we were like, kind of like in this wide open area where you could see for like a mile mm -hmm. ahead of you, which was perfect for me because I could then see as they passed us, how many times the pacer kept turning around and looking at us. Mm -hmm. And I told Sarah, I was like, this is wonderful. I go, they are so aware of us and so concerned about us being behind them and where we are. I go, we have, we're not even in a hundred miles yet. Mm -hmm. And so Sarah and I were like pretty relaxed. We're eating, we're watching the sunrise. We're taking in our, our hydration. I'm looking at my, at my heart rate and I'm like, we're just like chill. But, uh, ahead of us, they, they were very aware. What ended up happening is we get into the next aid station and it seemed that Elle was so exhausted, she went straight to bed. So we passed her at that aid station. I was fine. I was like normal energy. Um, but when I did come into that aid station, I, I have to share this part. Because you had asked me when I picked up Sarah, you said, how are your feet? Mm -hmm. And I lied to you. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, they're, they're fine. They were not fine. I had already taken care of them, I think, at the first aid station, mile 17. I had started putting stuff on them, both mm -hmm. my heels. Yeah, you started right. to open up. And 
for our listeners who have continued to wonder about my feet and why I've had trouble with them when my entire career, I've never had trouble with them. Cocodona was, um, it wasn't just blisters. It was feet wounds. All the skin on my feet was, was pretty much destroyed. So I haven't had a long enough time to toughen up that skin. And it is my understanding each time that at some point I will be dealing with with some foot wounds again. So before the race, I taped them up. I did a bunch of foot care. I spend like 20 minutes mm-hmm. um, doing all the things that are necessary to protect feet. Blister prevention. I got the, the lube on them. I got special taping. But at mile 17, they were, the heels were already screaming at me. So I did a little bit at mile 17. Uh, when Eddie saw me again at, at 68, when I picked up Sarah, I didn't want to take care of them. I probably should have. Um, but then we got into, this is the Island Ain Station. I think it's 81 maybe. And that's where Elle went to sleep. And I took off my shoes and I saw how bad they were. I had probably eight blisters. My baby toes end up being kind of the worst. They literally get mutilated. Blisters all over them. Um, They blow up to the size of a balloon. Um, They're bleeding. And I got emotional here because of that. And Ahmed tried to help me. I think even Destination Charles took a video of that, but she didn't like, it was super quick what she did. It was just a couple minutes. I let her like retape a heel, but I wouldn't let her touch anything else. I was like, no, 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 no. I'll take care of it. One of the reasons why I was so reluctant in this race in comparison to the other ones, because like Tahoe, I let him fix them, Bigfoot, I let him, is because of the cumulative time that it was taking to fix my feet. And that angered me. Mm. Um, if I added up feet stuff at Tahoe, it's like a couple hours, yeah. you know, of where I'm stopping on the trail, I'm stopping for a med to do it. And it's like, it starts to add up and you're like, man, like that's just, it's frustrating that it, that adds on time to my race. And I knew with wonderful athletes like Elle and Ann chasing me, I didn't have one and two hours to spare. Mm. I didn't have that to give. And so I had to make that choice to how quickly, if I could take a couple minutes and do what I could, that's fine. If you can spend a couple minutes, boom, 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 do what you can. But you can't sit in an aid station and get foot care um, if you're racing. Like You just have to deal with this. You've dealt with it for three times, Sally. You know what it feels like. Yeah, you're going to be in a world of pain. Deal with it. And so Sarah and I, we grabbed some food. We left that aid station. And as soon as we left, I think Billy got a picture of this because um, Billy's wife, Hillary, is like the head of media. So he was there with a camera. He, You couldn't crew at this station. So he was actually stayed far away from us. But um, from from the distances, Sarah and I were running out of the aid station. You, he got this shot of Sarah with her arm around me. And I just now saw it yesterday because I didn't, I don't see a lot of the stuff because I'm racing and it races off of my stories, but on Instagram, but I saw it yesterday and I kind of welled up emotionally. I told you, Eddie, that I go, I'm crying right there. Mm -hmm. I'm literally crying. And Sarah has her arm around me. And, uh, I may have uttered a few curse words in that moment as we left the aid station. And I was just bleep and bleep. I can't believe that they are so bad this early on. I can't believe that I have to deal with this again. And I may have punched my quads a couple times too and had to take a couple breaths. And then I looked at Sarah, I said, I'm sorry, I'm I'm a little emotional right now. I, I, I just, I need to vent that for a second. She's like, no, totally, it's fine. And venting that actually felt good. 
um, just to get that out because, you know, I hold a lot of that inside when I race. I don't like to talk to everyone's crew and medics and volunteers and, and even my pacers and crew about that because I don't want it to be an issue that is a massive discussion because it can't change. Like it's not something that like, Oh, just bring her an extra jacket and she won't be cold anymore. Oh, bring her like an extra pack. Her pack's broken. It's not that it's like, you can't do anything. There's no one that's going to make my feet feel better. They're not going to get better. And sitting here crying about it, isn't going to make it better. It's just me having to now mentally embrace what it's going to feel like for the remainder of this race, which at this point is a hundred and what, 60 miles still to go. Mm-hmm. So Sarah and I left and we were now entering um, one of the toughest parts of the section, but this is also where the eclipse happened. Mm-hmm. So for those of you that remember the eclipse um, of the sun, that was amazing. Sarah brought eclipse glasses. It was the coolest thing ever. Oh, cool. And um, as we ran along, we, we, put those on. I think we put them on like three or four times while we ran because it kept changing. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was so excited about it. And the section was so beautiful. And I just loved that I got to share that beauty with Sarah and just to listen to her talk about life. And we shared stories and, and I just kept telling her, thank you. And I said, I'll never, ever, ever forget this. Like running Moab 240 with you, like this champion, incredible ultra runner and human being and put it on uh, solar eclipse glasses to mm-hmm. watch the the eclipse. And so we moved along pretty well. We got into the aid station really well. We were in and out fast, got some food. And then we started this super gnarly section that was rugged. It was overgrown. We were running in, in like these washes. It was very hot at this section too. And by this time, Um, I was not eating too well. Um, even like even water, I started to notice wasn't making me feel good. And I was like, shoot, we're not going to go back there again. Are we, we then started, we, we, we were trying, working our way up to see you, Eddie. I think it was Shea mountain. Yeah. Was the next aid station. What mile was that? 114. Okay. So we had hit the 100 mile mark and now we are working toward mile 114, the next aid station. This was a lot of climbing. It was rugged. It was steep. A lot of single track. You're kind of lost in trees. We hadn't seen people for a really long time. And at this point, I could I could feel like my energy waning. I could feel I was I was having a hard time breathing. We're a lot higher in altitude. I just I hit a low point here. And probably like five or six miles from the aid station, I I look up at Sarah and I go, I, I feel like I hear a female voice behind me. She's like, she looks back. She's like, no, there's nothing. She's like, I haven't heard anything in a long time. So we continue on another mile later. I go, no, like seriously, I'm, I swear. I go, I think that's L behind us. I go, that's freaking amazing, dude. Mm-hmm. She worked so hard to catch back up to us. I go, and in this section, like in my mind, I was thinking, I was like, this is like a really rugged, hard section to push hard to catch somebody. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't like we were moving like bad. We were moving a little bit slower, but I thought we're moving well. Like we haven't stopped. Like we've been pressing forward this whole time. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, she slept yeah, forever. How long in that aid station? 
And we, we left, we've been running, we've been pressing forward this entire time. So all that means to me is that she has spent this whole time pushing Mm -hmm. to catch me Mm -hmm. on one of the toughest sections of the course. And again, the way I translated that, the way that I, in my mind, I was like, that's, that's good for me. Yeah. Because it's the heat of the day, hardest climb, and we're not even at mile 140 yet. Mm -hmm. We're like mile 105, 108 at this point. Pretty soon we see her pacer coming to view and her pacer is like, I don't know, like 30 feet in front of her. And he's no poles, just cruising up this steep climb. And and Sarah knows who her pacer is. Mm. So I say hi to him. He's a super sweet guy, has a big old smile. We're both wearing Zagama Nike trail shoes. I noticed that. Nice. Like really kind guy. He's like, good job, you guys. Like super positive, which I feel like everyone out on the trail is. Yeah. Like everyone is just so awesome out there. He gets up to Sarah. They they kind of chat a little bit. And then this is my first time ever seeing Elle. I've never, I've never seen her before. So she she starts coming up and again. I immediately, I step off on the trail because I want to watch her. I want to watch her body. I want to listen to her breathing. I want to see what her state of mind is. This is all part of being a competitive athlete. Mm -hmm. Like you study your competitor. And for me, it's worth it. Like I'll step off the trail for a couple minutes and learn something about the person chasing me. And so she starts, you know, coming up, she gets closer and I go, good job. You're doing great. And she is redlining. I mean, it is very loud, audible, very labored breathing. She is pushing so hard up this climb. And I look at her and and she just looks at me. She doesn't say anything. And I go, good job. And she's just like, huh? <laughs> and I go, do you want to go up to your pacer up there? And she's like, yeah, pacer. That's my pacer. And I was like, all right, you're doing great. But just, you could just tell mm-hmm. it was... Uh, it was a hard push. Yeah. And it we continued to climb all the way up to the aid station. There was no flat. Um, I think there was actually there was one maybe like a mile and a half of of like some descent, some flat, but for the most part, it was a push all the way up to up to the mountain. When we got up to the mountain, I was back in second. I was freezing. So it was the night had fallen by this time. I hadn't eaten very much. And I don't know if you remember how I came into that aid station. Yeah. Well, just for reference, it was 32 degrees. Mm-hmm. So it was literally like At freezing. the top of the mountain and wind yeah. windy. Yeah. I can't remember what time it was, but it was very late, dark, super cold. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you came in. It was like in. nine or 10, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because um, we had watched the sun set and okay. maybe even been earlier than that. I think it was just then dark. It had been dark for like an hour. Uh, yeah, you you came in and you remember you said, you know, you wanted to sleep. You're like, I just need like 10 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I just want to come in 10 minutes. And so I did come in. My feet were very bad. I said to Eddie, I said, I want to go to the car with you. The whole crew, pacers, everyone was standing there. And I looked right at you and I said, I need to go to the car now. I need to change. I'm mm-hmm. freezing. So we went to the car. So I was in the, I was in the aid station for 30 minutes, but um, first and foremost, what was important was taking care of my body. So I changed my clothes. Um, I got into warmer clothes, warmer layers. I then looked at my feet and realized like, I need to fix these as best I can. So very quickly did the feet. And then 
maybe slept a total of 15, 20 minutes within that as well. Ate some food, hopped out, got Summer, and then Summer and I continued off into the night. And it was so cool because Summer's so creative. She had made these cardboard signs for me Mm -hmm. and put them out at every aid station. And at this one, I remember it it sticks out to me so much, but it says we're stronger when we stand in the rain. Mm -hmm. And that's a direct... uh, Hit from my book, um, Standing in the Rain is one of the chapters. Oh, man, that really hit me like right at my heart. That really got me going as we went into the night. Yeah, that was cool. So Summer and I, we continued into the night. We had like some good, we had a couple miles of good running. We we linked up with some other runners. Um, Summer also had great energy. I felt like we just like talked the entire time, talked, laughed. And as far as eating goes, I think it was, it was, it it was kind of intermittent here. Like I could get like little tiny bits. I don't ever feel like I was able to get in like big portions of food. It was really like 30 calories here. 10 calories here, and then really relying on the coconut water that you were giving me. Yeah. So I was drinking coconut water and Gatorade. I, I'd say that that pretty much from the time that Sarah picked me up and for most of the race, it was liquid that I, th- that was the most of my calories. And yeah, I mean, starting at 114 is when you started getting the smoothies too. Yes. Yeah. So you're the smoothies. I think I got three total. Three of them. Yeah. That was the biggest calorie bomb that I got for the whole entire race. Yeah. And that was, I would look forward to those because I thought I can get the cat those in, but gels, G1M, bars, any food from the aid stations, I I couldn't get in anymore. Yeah. So it had to be like really minimal stuff. So I did rely on coconut water, Gatorade and smoothies pretty much from this point on to the end of the race to get me through. Yeah. When you add up that amount of calories, it simply is not enough. It it is devastatingly low. And I knew that. And when you are in altitude in freezing cold and you don't have enough calories and you're sleep deprived, it was kind of the same thing that I knew it would happen at Tahoe. I knew that at some point my brain would just revolt against that. Like there's just, I don't have anything coming in and I'm trying to push. And now just the thinking process, the ability to focus and to to push, it will become increasingly harder as we get towards the end of the race. Mm-hmm. And of course that is what happened. But yeah. summer was, um, yeah, great pacer. We got the miles done, stayed super relaxed. I felt like, you know, I was second place at this time. Um, I knew Anne was behind me, but I felt like she was pretty far back. I never saw Anne the entire race. I didn't even know what she looked like until um, the next day after I finished racing. I went to look her up to see that she had finished. I wanted to see what she looked like. So um, I never saw her crew or pacers or anything. Yeah, at this point, mo- most most of the race, it was about 10 miles behind like you and Elle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for okay. like a good consistent amount of yeah time of yeah. the race. I mean, she she was very smart. I think she and I probably had the same race strategy. Yeah, probably. Because um what ended up happening in the next section showed me I was like, oh shoot, like I'm I shouldn't be worrying about oh I should be worrying about Anne. Mm. Like this is a very wise racer. She knows yeah. what she's doing. So finished my section with summer and now for the 27 mile Dirt and gravel road run with Billy Yang. Now, everyone is curious as to why Billy only ran this section, why I chose him specifically for this section. This is the point in the race that I decided to actually 
really focus on racing now. And I believed because I had kind of pulled back a little bit. I had saved, you know, myself, not pushed hard yet, that this is where I could actually, okay, let's start doing some damage. And what better place to do it when I studied the course than on a flat, a flat-ish, I mean, it was indolating, but we're not in the mountains at this point. It's all dirt road. From my understanding, if you had legs, you could do a lot of damage in 27 miles. You could make up a lot of time. Even someone that is like six miles ahead of you, if you can move a few minutes faster than them over the mm-hmm. course of 27 miles, you're going to make up a lot of ground. Yeah. And so my plan for the first 140 miles was I took every downhill super easy. And I love the downhills. I usually just go with it and charge them hard for the first, you know, part of this race. I didn't do that at all because I constantly told myself, you want to be able to run strong in this section. You want to be able to run the entire time. You want to be able to like pick up the pace. It will pay off, Sally. It will pay off. So holding back for the first 140 until I picked up Billy, that was difficult. I had to put away a lot of my pride and I had to trust in this race strategy because at this point, I think Elle was like seven miles ahead of me. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. So in the 27 mile section, she was seven miles or do you think six? Uh, yeah. Yeah. In between six and seven, probably. Okay. Yeah. So running with Billy was, this really was a highlight for me because this was also the one section of the race where I knew I would run with someone the entire time and be able to talk the whole time. Mm-hmm. So with all the other pacers, like we hit a lot of altitude and some really gnarly steep climbing. And usually I do, I, I'm, don't do well talking. Mm-hmm. Like I'm trying to breathe and um, I'm working through like a lot of discomfort. And so I knew like having a, a dear friend run with me and talk the entire time would, would rejuvenate me. It would keep me running well. Um, and Billy is a great runner. You know, he, we live like an, in the same terrain. We both live along the coast and then we have the mountains to run and Billy has done like a ton of road races in his life. And when he heads out to do road running, like he keeps a good clip, like he's really fit. So I felt like this is going to be like an easy section for him. He'll be able to talk to me the whole time. And I was 100% accurate with that. Mm -hmm. So we started and we had, we talked about everything under the sun. I mean, politics, religion, um, big dreams, business. I mean, it was, it was amazing. And we laughed a ton. There was an aid station in the middle of that. We both had burgers. So at that point, my stomach was um, better. Mm. So I was able just to like cruise. It was a beautiful morning. I had given my stomach such a long reset that when we got into the aid station, I was super excited. And I looked at Billy. I said, oh my gosh, a burger sounds good. He's like, let's have a burger. Let's mm-hmm. have a burger. Like this is amazing. So I ate a bunch of watermelon. I had a burger and we continued on and I kept looking at my watch and I kept telling myself, there's no way anybody is running as fast as I am right now. Like I felt so amazing. Now to the listeners in a race this long, we're, we're never running at like a very, uh, impressive pace. So for me, if I can get into the 10 minute range, I'm stoked. Mm -hmm. And we did that a lot. Like we just dropped into like a 10, anywhere between a 10 and 11 minute 
pace when for a lot of times in these races people are fighting to go 15 and 16 minute mm-hmm. miles yeah. you know you're climbing up big mountains and it's really steep rocky descents mm-hmm. um you know especially at mile 189 like it, it's hard to to keep moving at like an efficient pace but that was the goal for this section so for the full 27 miles we picked up the pace significantly we ate well really high spirits and when we got into the aid station l was there mm-hmm. so i pretty much caught her on this section yeah. and i remember walking in and the crew i could just see everyone's face saw your face too yeah. you guys were so excited to see me i think i arrived you came in an hour earlier than we expected when you started that section yeah yeah it was kind of similar to Tahoe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like when I decided to race at Tahoe, mm-hmm. I came in the next A station an hour earlier. Right. And that's pretty much what I did here. Mm-hmm. When it was time to race, I picked up the pace, came in an hour earlier, and I did the same thing. I watched everything that was going on with L. And I'll be honest, like it broke my heart because I could see that she was hurting. Mm-hmm. You know, she was grabbing onto her legs. Mm-hmm. I knew how hard she had pushed extra hard, like earlier in the race. And I just was like, man, dude, like, I hope that her, that, that she is going to come back from this because she's making the race great. Yeah, I know. She's making it exciting. Um, Also knowing that it was for her first 200, I just had like massive respect Mm -hmm. for all the work she had done already. But I mean, she was, she was gritty. Yeah. She's big time. freaking gritty and strong. Cause she, uh, we, we left that. I mean, we ate, drank high energy, dropped off, uh, Billy picked up Joe. And now it was the last 70 miles of the race. Yep. And, um, with the last 70 miles of the race, we took first place and we held on to first place for, um, for the whole time and never relinquished it again. And mm-hmm. that was the goal. Right. The goal was to, was to win the race. It was to race the last 100 miles. And so, um, we left that aid station in high spirits and we ran up that climb. And I told Joe that I go, when we leave, we have to leave strong. Yeah, We have to leave a mark and send a message that I'm not leaving this aid station wrecked. I'm leaving it high energy. Now I'm racing and I'm dead serious about what I'm doing. But uh, the crew also let me know, like, hey, that girl, Anne, has made up a lot of time, too. Yeah. And now she was only, I think, only seven miles behind me, maybe six miles. And I remember saying, that girl is very wise. Mm-hmm. I go, she might have the same strategy as me. She has been patient to slowly moved up. And and she moved very well on that section, too. Yeah. Like she hammered that section. She made up several miles. And at that point, we then understood that that Anne was actually the one that we needed to be um, careful of. And, and L too, L L was not uh, out of, out of the run. I think it ended up being Anne and L battled back and forth. um, Mm -hmm. And I always just kind of stayed ahead out of it. So I know to the listeners, that was a very popular question. People said, how did it feel with Anne and L on your heels? Um, I never felt like that, I never saw them. So they were always just far enough away. Even if you saw at times it was three, four miles on the tracker, that could be an hour, hour and a half actually behind me. If you do the math and and you understand like the pacing of the miles and the and what you're doing, if all I had to do was to keep moving and and I knew they wouldn't be able to catch me. At one point, there was a point when I had a super, super low point. It was in the last 30 miles of the race. 
And I had to take, um, this is where I started to become really tired. In the last 30 miles, I stopped eating. So I pretty much didn't eat anything the last 30 miles. Mm -hmm. I was vomiting water. We entered mile 200 and 200 mile aid station, Ed, you remember this is where I sat in the car again. I took care of my feet again. I Mm -hmm. ate pretty quickly. Uh, We were climbing back up into really high altitude. Um, When I had come in, I had had some significant breathing problems Mm -hmm. uh, for the previous 10 miles. And it was so bad that I actually wondered, and Joe wondered too, if I was having an anxiety attack. Mm. And so he did like this breathing technique with me where I had to like count on how long I was breathing out and breathing in. And when he stayed like right next to me doing that breathing, I would completely relax. Mm. And then as he would run ahead of me and I'd fall on the climb, like I would, I feel like my breathing would get crazy again. And he would turn around and he would look at me and just say, Sally, breathe. And he would breathe. And I would just like copy his breathing. And then I would like calm down again. So that it was like that for like 10 miles. I don't know what that was. I've never experienced that Mm. in a race, but I couldn't breathe out fully or I couldn't, and I couldn't breathe in fully. And we had a chat about it. And I was like, I, I wonder if part of it is just the race, like the race as a whole, like I've been leading for so long. I know I'm being chased and I'm getting anxious about the fact that I can't eat. I'm vomiting water and we're going up into high altitude and I can't change those things. Yeah, Like it, it will undoubtedly slow me down. And I want to win this race so bad that if I get past in these last 30 miles, like it will crush me. Like, mm-hmm. and so we talked about that. Like Joe and I had that conversation of um, all the things that I couldn't control. And yeah, in that section of the course, you stayed up to uh, like 10,000 feet for quite a bit, like yeah. for a while until mm-hmm. the race eventually ends at 4,000 feet. But yeah. you were up at 10 for mm-hmm. uh, quite a bit without, you know, not able to eat and mm-hmm. tired and the, the race stress, like all of that, yeah. you know, definitely played a part. Well, we are also surprised too, because we left you at mile 200 and the aid station was 25 miles away. Mm. And I remember even Joe struggling here too, because it was fully exposed. It was hot and it was another long. um, So you climb around, like you're on the trails for like eight miles and then you're spit out onto like these roads for like 15, 17 miles. And you're just trying to move as best you can. And I know that at this point, Anne is getting closer. So my lead on her was like seven, eight miles at one point. And then all of a sudden it was like six, five, Mm -hmm. four. And then she was working pretty well at four. We would go back and forth. And so I would tell Joe, I go, I know four, like, if I just keep moving, she's not going to catch me, but I have to send a message that I'm still racing. Yeah. So we would pick up, um, we would pick up our pace and we would start pushing and I am hot. I I can't get in water. I have I haven't had calories in hours. And I'm trying to gap and really like bury mm-hmm. um Anne right behind me, who's I mean, she's an amazing athlete. Mm-hmm. I can't believe how hard she was pushing. Mm-hmm. And for those of you that um weren't able to follow along, Anne had to go, she went off course. Mm-hmm. And the rules in these races are if you go off course, you have to go to that spot, redo it, and then come back. So she had to go do this three mile section. 
And I was totally well aware of that. And that was around the time when all three of us were coming into mile 200. So Elle had yeah. come into 200, I'd come into 200, and then um, Anne had been working toward coming into 200 too. So, you know, we're in the last 40 miles of this race and all three of us wanted to win. So yeah, not having the resources to to make set my body up for that successful crossing of the finish line. It it got to me mentally. I hit a really, really low point. We finally made it to the aid station. We had 18 miles left. And I remember coming in there and Joe was a little anxious because he's like, she's less than four miles away. Gaining, yeah. yeah. She's less than four miles away. And that was making me anxious um, cause he kept reminding me of that. Like she's less than four Sally. And, and I would tell him, I go, I go, Joe, do you know how far away four miles is? I go, it's so far. I go, even if she's, even if she's going at a 10 minute pace, which she's not, no one is going at a 10 minute pace. Mm. That's 40 minutes away. I go, if we keep pushing forward, she's not, she's not going to catch us. And we're moving well too. And he's like, I don't know, like, you know, her gap, is, it is closing. And he's like, and you've had to stop for a couple dirt naps. And and I did, I was like, mm-hmm. I, at this point I was now starting to hallucinate. I was starting to kind of slow down. Things were getting dizzy. So we get into the aid station. And he says, you have to eat something. You have to, we can't leave until you do. And so I used the bathroom real quick. Someone came out with some soup. I tried to eat like little bites of this vegetable soup. I asked them to put the broth in my flask because it was really salty. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even fill the water in my bladder because I I took a cup of water first. I was so thirsty. I drank down this cup of water and it was like for 30 seconds life to my body. It was like that feeling after a hot run when you drink a cold glass of water and you're just so excited. Mm -hmm. You feel the way it's replenishing you. I drank that water and I was like, this is everything I needed. And then 30 seconds later, projectile vomited Mm -hmm. out. And I was like, there's no way. Like I can't even keep water down. And then I puked up any of the soup that I had had to. Mm. And right then and there, I turned to Joe. I had to make a decision. I said, Joe, we have 18 miles left. Anne is gaining on us. I know how to move on nothing. I've done this before. And that was a very valuable moment because what I realized was because I had done Bigfoot and Tahoe severely depleted. Yeah. I was able to trust in what I wanted to do in that mm-hmm. moment. It, it had had I not had those experiences before, I would have been freaking out. It would have really played into how I felt mentally. I probably would have sat in the aid station and 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 done everything I could to get some calories in. There would have been a lot of people weighing in on that too. I mean, that happens too. Like you get a lot of volunteers and medics and start telling you what to do. And so I knew as soon as I finished vomiting, I, I was vomiting behind the bathroom. I came and was like, we're leaving now. Mm-hmm. Like this is just non-negotiable. I want this win. And this is the only way that we're going to get it. So we took off. I took off with one flask that was half full of broth. And another flask that I think that you had given me had a little bit of that coconut mango water pineapple, in it, yeah, pi- pineapple water in it. During that section, I, I I don't remember a ton of it. The sun started to set. I probably had four, four or five dirt naps. And the 
dirt naps were life to me. Mm -hmm. It was the only way I could keep moving because what was going on is I would just follow Joe. I was just following his steps. And then all of a sudden, like I would be standing there and I could hear his voice calling to me. I don't know what was going on, but he would say, Sally, Sally. And I would look up and I would see his headlamp and I would say, yeah. And he like, come to me. And and then what would happen a lot is I would hear him say that. And then all of a sudden I would be like holding on to a branch hmm. or a, I have a rock in my hand. I was wandering and you'd hear Joe again, Sally. And he'd run back to me. He's like, D- what, do, what do you need? What do you need right now? And I would tell him, if I don't sleep for five minutes right now, I'm not gonna be able to move at all. Mm-hmm. So I would drop down in the dirt, just right there in the middle of the trail. And I was out, like out, completely asleep right away. Then I feel him tap my shoulder and he'd be like, five minutes, let's go. So I'd pop up and I would be good for like another hour. I'd be fine after those five minutes. So we that happened like three or four times. And there were times when I remember at um, Tahoe, when I was running by myself, I didn't have a pacer and I was experiencing this. I would just take out my phone and I'd set an alarm. Hmm. I'd set an alarm for five, seven minutes, usually between five, seven minutes. That's, that's like the key number for me. I don't need more than that. And less than that's just too little. Um, but I would have an alarm go off and I'd pop up and, and, and keep running. So Joe and I, we continued moving. He was still anxious the whole time. I think at one point, right before we hit, we hit the bike path, which the bike path means you're less than five miles of the finish line. Mm -hmm. But he was so anxious about me losing first place that he would look back across the valley in any flickering light. He'd be like, that's her, that's her right there. And I'm like, Joe, there's no way that's Mm -hmm. her. Like she's, she's literally like an, hour away at least like you're not seeing her headlamp i go let's just keep pushing forward he's like sally if you lose first place while i'm pacing you he's like i will never ever be to you know forgive myself yeah. I go, it's okay i go if i lose first place it's not because of you yeah i go i'm th- this is me running this race like the all 100 effort has to be because of me mm-hmm. like there's nothing that you can do to make me move faster there's nothing that you can do to, to move my legs to take away this tiredness like i have to do all this on my own yeah. like you're just you're essentially keeping me from walking off a cliff like literally doing that we finally make it down. You know, you have to carry a map. So we're looking at the map. We're like, where is this bike path? Where is this bike path? It seems to take forever to get at this bike path. And it is pitch black out there. So Mm -hmm. we just got our little headlamps and we're descending and descending, descending. And this descent is rocky. I mean, it is so, there are so many rocks, slick rocks, big boulders. And I'll tell you what, my, my feet for the last, you know, 30, 40 hours have been screaming at me. So this descent was really, really painful. And I, all I could think about was like, I just can't wait to get that bike path and just like smoothly pedal. We finally see the bike path and like, I'm jumping up and down. I have tears in my eyes and I look at Joe, I go, this first place is mine. Mm -hmm. Like this is mine. Like there is no way that anyone will pass me here. And I go, we will pick up the pace here. Like we are going to push. So we get on that bike path and we go, and I probably look behind me just out of instinct and it's pitch black like 20 times. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm thinking in my mind, like she could, she could be really smart and turn off her headlamp, but still even like she's many miles behind me. I am still really struggling now with being delusional. It's really funny. I'm noticing that, um, I started talking to Joe about, I go, yeah, she probably needs like an Uber driver or something like that. But then I catch myself saying mm-hmm. that and he goes, what? And I was like, oh, never mind. I, go, I think I'm delusional. He's like, yeah, dude. Then I ran straight into this pole, <laughs> like this pole, you know, those poles that pop up in bike paths to like, um, you can't take a car down there. Yes. Yeah, so you yeah. can't take a car down yeah. it. I ran straight into that. Like if I was a guy, I would have been on the ground yeah. crying. That's where I, ra- that's how I ran into it. And Joe was like, oh my gosh, are you okay? I was like, yeah, I just was like running sideways. Like I just am so out of it. We run another mile and I ran straight to the curb and fall over the curb into the street. Mm. Like it was it was just this constant, like, just stay on the path, Sally. And I'm looking behind me too. So we battled all the way in and it wasn't until we were like 500 meters away when you can see the lights flickering of where all you guys were, like the, the big RV area and the finish line. You hear a little bit of, of sounds coming out. And then all of a sudden Hillary comes out with the live feed camera to, to follow me in. And I'm, I'm a wreck, dude. My body is a wreck. I'm moving like, you know, I'm not moving great, but I'm a wreck in a happy way. Mm-hmm. Like this is going to, I think I even look over my shoulder one more time just to, to just to make sure. Yeah. But man, that feeling of seeing that finish line and running the last 50 steps to not only become the champion of Moab 240, but to just accomplish and complete what we set out to do this year Mm. in all its entirety. It was one of the greatest moments of my career Mm. because I fought. I gave everything in me to do that. And that's something I'll always be proud of to finish a race knowing like I, I fought hard. I gave everything that I was, I, I pushed through some, pretty intense discomfort. Mm-hmm. I had to make that choice over and over again. You know, one of the um, things that I, I left out was there was like an eight mile section where I had to tell Joe to leave me alone. Mm. And I just had tears coming down my face because I was in so much pain. Yeah, And it was in that last 30 miles, that 25 mile section without an aid station was super hot. And I knew Anne was chasing me and she was getting closer and closer. And I had to ask myself, what, what is this win worth to you? Mm. Because the pain is temporary. And if you focus on the pain, it's going to overtake you. Mm -hmm. But if you focus on the goal and what you set out to do, what you worked hard for this entire year, your entire career, then you're going to be able to get through it Mm -hmm. because the prize is greater than the pain. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'll always remember this race as that, as, as pushing through because it was worth it. Mm. And yeah. That's awesome. And what's cool too, is where, you know, like you were talking about how you came in with a strategy and this is a strategy. I had to stick to it. And not every time that you race, even if you have a good strategy, does it play out the way you want or you're executing it exactly how you laid it out, but this one you pretty much did, right? That's kind of a, a good feeling too. Oh, it's the best feeling. Yeah. You're right. I, I'd said it earlier. My plan was to be patient and not race until the second half. That doesn't always work. Mm. 
you know, you look at even races like Western states. There's a lot of people that hope for that strategy. They hope to start racing like at Forest Hill, mile 61. Yeah. But sorry, there's some runners in there that are that good that they lead wire to wire. Mm -hmm. They're going to push hard from the start and they're going to win. And so it's, it's trusting where these are my greatest strengths. This is what I have to give. Yeah. If I try to do someone else's strategy, I'll blow up. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I tried to push in the beginning, if I tried to race L those two times that she passed me, I wouldn't have been able to push what I went through, what I pushed through at, at the, the end. end. Yeah, Like what I pushed through at the end was because I had a tiny bit left mm -hmm. was because I saved it mm -hmm. and I was able to muster that up and, and keep going, you know, to pick up the pace in those last 30 miles on that road. When I have tears coming down my eyes, like, I, I couldn't have done that if I had given my race away in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I would have been tired and and really beaten down and my system would have been just completely done. Yeah. And so, yeah, it felt so good. Lucky. You you, you kind of feel lucky, actually. Sure. You feel lucky that your race strategy worked. Mm -hmm. It's funny because the first nine, 10 hours into the race, uh, I knew your strategy, obviously, that was, you know, something we talked about for quite a bit, uh, leading into that race, especially that you were the only one that knew. Yeah. Especially that week leading into, it, we talked about it quite a bit and how you said that was going to be difficult to be patient just because, um, you of your pride of just like you wanting to compete and race. So to, you know, to, to slow down and to be really conservative for the first 140 miles is going to be difficult, you know, you're going to have to keep repeating to yourself, be patient. So, and obviously when I, you know, you take off, uh, you know, for the race, I don't know like a lot that's going on besides watching the tracker, like everybody else does. And then obviously at the aid stations, I can see you, but between those, like, I don't know a lot that's going on. <laughs> and so it's funny because I know it was like super early in the race, but at like nine, nine thirty, I, I, we had one more night in that hotel because it was still there in Moab. Oh, and yeah. so I went back and, uh, you know, the Lakers were on, so I'm sitting there watching the Laker game, but I'm also following the tracker. <laughs> and I look down and I see you like in first place and you're at mile 45 at this point. And you were going pretty quick, like three and a half, four miles an hour, you know, which was moving pretty well, like to be conservative. I was like, in my head, I was like, dude, she better slow down. Like you better <laughs> slow down, Sal. Like, I don't, you know, I don't think this is being patient right now. I don't think you're being very wise, but it was funny. Cause just cause I knew, you know, yeah. the strategy and how you were like, I'm going to purposely go out slow well, and pe conservative. People had said that, um, I remember Courtney Dualter, we're, we're good friends and we had gone, we were texting back and forth and she was talking about the course and she had said, she's like, dude, the first hundred miles is pretty like, for the most part, there's a lot of very runnable sections. And I was surprised the first 50, 60, like it, she was totally right. Mm. So it was, um, you also have to pay attention to like effort. So I felt like I was moving really well too, but like I'd look at my heart rate and everything. And like, I was talking to people the entire time. I was like, okay, like this, this effort is easy for me. It's just yeah. that the course at this point, cause it wasn't later, 
the course at this point is very runnable and, and it was smoother. It was so enjoyable. You could really kind of relax into it. But yeah, I was surprised too. I mm. thought for whatever reason, I just thought that it would be rockier and way steeper right away. I thought I would be moving a lot slower. Mm-hmm. So um, I thought the same thing. Like when I came into mile 17 and I was in first place, I was like, oh my gosh, I hope Eddie knows that like, yeah. I promise I am trying to be patient here. But yeah, I think you know, for everyone listening, some of the things that I really want to highlight in sharing this story, first and foremost, is that your journey and your specific like strengths and weaknesses are they're unique to you and and trusting in those and um, being humble about them. It isn't easy, but it is something that we can all work on. And, and that goes for anything. You know, having to admit like, hey, I'm not the best runner for me when I try to lead wire to wire, like something usually like blows up. I don't like admitting that, but that is essentially what helped me in this race. Mm -hmm. And I think we can apply that to many areas in our life. Like, that's great that that person can work on the project like this, or that's great that 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 she can be a mom like that and do all that. But like, that doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. Like, that doesn't fit my lifestyle. It doesn't fit my family. That doesn't fit my strengths. I don't have those resources. I don't have that. And it's that's okay. Mm -hmm. It's not a negative thing to appreciate what you have, where you are in life, to appreciate the strengths that have been given to you and your creativities and those gifts, that becomes powerful in your life. If you can harness those things and see them as as unique to you for a specific reason, Mm -hmm. then it's really going to help you overcome um, insecurities, disappointments. Um, It's going to help you stop comparing. I mean, it's so easy to do, especially as athletes. It's so easy to compare our training, how someone is is running, what their, their race victories are like and and totally forget that we have our own strengths too and that we're on our own journey we peak at different times and we have to tell this to Mackenzie all the time too she's a young very competitive athlete and I have to remind her like yeah you're gonna be racing against girls that are running 50 and 60 miles a week right now Mm -hmm. and so they will be faster than you Mm -hmm. you're running 30 to 40 miles a week but guess what you have your whole your whole running career ahead of you and you might peak later on. Mm-hmm. You might, you know, you have different strengths on different courses and and you will always be a different runner. Pay attention and focus on the work of your hands and the journey that you have set before you. Don't get so caught up in what other people are doing. I think we can learn and be inspired by people around us, but we also have to be aware of, are we learning and being inspired? Or are we being um, discouraged and are we comparing and, and becoming jealous or, um, you know, losing our own way. And so it's always just checking in. And I think this race, Eddie, every time I saw you, I was always having to check in, mm-hmm. you know, you were checking in with me. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, for our listeners, when you have people in your life that you can check in with, that can play a very powerful role too. It's important to have people that you trust, that you can be honest with, People that you know love you no matter what, that aren't going to judge you, aren't going to rip you to shreds if if you're in a bad place in your life or if you're failing or you're not meeting that mark that you want to. I mean, Eddie, you have always been that to me. I know every time that I came into an aid station, regardless of how I was feeling, that I was going to be better leaving the aid station. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think our crew or pacers knew this, but... 
there was three times that I came in, I saw Eddie and I would say, oh, I need to change Eddie. Come with me. But really I was so overwhelmed. I was so overwhelmed in those moments. I was in so much pain and discomfort. I didn't want anybody to weigh in. I didn't want anyone to say anything or speak into my mind in that moment. I just needed the one person that I trust more than anyone on this whole planet who is always steady, steady Mm. Eddie and balanced and calm. I mean, I could probably come in with like blood coming down my knees and my face and Eddie would still be calm and be like, let's get you through this. So Mm. for me, you have always been just like that strong redwood tree in my life where when I came into the aid stations, I was like, I'm going to, I'll be better if I can just spend a few minutes with you. And I think for our listeners, you know, identify who those people are in your life and remember to show your gratitude toward them. Mm. Tell them that, tell them, thank you that thank you for listening to me. Thank you for speaking truth to me. Thank you for not always just giving your opinion on what you think I should do, but for just loving me where I am and encouraging me and, and what I do. And, you know, we, we are not meant to do these things alone. We're not meant to do life alone. We need each other. And that's another reason why for Moab 240, we, we made such a big crew. Yeah. Um, also of Pacers. Listen, I know there's a lot of, um, you know, there, there, we could, we could say there's a lot of clout in doing these things on your own. Mm-hmm. You know, I did 240 without Pacers or crew. I, I think it's actually pretty easy to get Pacers and crew. You just put that up in the Facebook page. There's tons of people that yeah. want to do these. Um, and so whether it's because they want to do it because of course recon or they just want to be a part of the event, you can get Pacers or crew for these. You just plan. Mm-hmm. But for me, I believe that these races are about the experience with the people, the relationships, the memories. And that's why we were so specific on having Sarah Ostawuski, Joe Corsione, Summer Ago, uh, Leo Fung, um, Billy Yang, Drew Darby, and Tyler McCain were out there filming. We had an amazing support. Mm-hmm. out there and we wanted that that's how we wanted to finish this is yeah. also just to kind of send that message that we're better together we're stronger together and um this race will be forever imprinted in my mind and in my heart because of those people yeah not just because i won i mean i feel like we could sit here and and keep chatting about all the things that right. we can that we left out or that we you know would come to mind if we start chatting about <laughs> more stuff but um, i know i feel like there's so many stories that you could tell Eddie. I, I feel so, like we yeah. haven't done like, Probably. maybe we need to do like a crew and Pacers podcast and yeah. just have you guys without me uh, yeah, tell right? the stories. There's a lot of stories. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. But yeah, let's wrap uh, this this one up. There's a movie coming out or a film. Yeah. Um, right. Tyler and Drew are going to be mm-hmm. putting a film together for this one too, which would be cool. Drew um, and Tyler are incredible. They're so talented. And I, I have to say, I feel like they were able to get to more sections on the on this race than any other race that they've ever done. Yeah, that's so what I'm said. super excited to see what they're going to do. Um their last film Tahoe 200 is I I it's over 300,000 views just in a couple weeks. Um it is an incredible film if you haven't seen it yet, please go check it out. It's on my Sally McRae Strength YouTube channel. Make sure you follow Drew Darby and Tyler McCain on Instagram. Um they are always putting out great content and a lot of shots and footage from my races. So mm-hmm. you're you're going to see a lot of that on on their accounts. Um but also to give them kudos, like give them a good job, a thumbs up. These guys are just starting out. They 
They've already done some amazing things in the endurance world. And of course, Eddie and I love cheering them on, but they are going to be putting out a Moab film. Um, it's going to be a holiday film. So we're looking at the end of the year. I think it's going to be their best film yet personally. Yeah, I'm excited. I think to... it's going to be incredible. I think it'll be hard to top Tahoe, but like yeah. how this race spun out, all the people involved. Yeah, they do. They do incredible stuff. And I always, I always tell them, you know, man, I love lo looking at the, or watching the film later because, you know, they get to see portions of the course that even though I'm literally at the race, I don't get to see because mm -hmm. I, I go to the crew aid stations and that's all I get to do. So I don't really get to see a good portion of you running and all the great, like epic parts of the, of the race. So I always look forward to, uh, to seeing it. Yeah. That's super cool. All right. What's, uh, what's next now that you have <laughs> done, you checked off four 200 plus mile races in oh the past gosh. five months. Right now I am recovering. And then I believe you and I, Eddie, have some meetings next week to talk about what we're doing in 2024, which I love doing. I love our dream brainstorming meetings, but, um, I which, will, which means it's a lot of you like spilling out all these ideas <laughs> and me taking notes. That's what that means. <laughs> and shaking my head. Oh like, gosh, oh. you love me. You love me. Oh man. I am going to start my off season. Off season is filled with a, I, a lot of fun activities. I take a break from structured running. I give my mental intensity side of me a break and really allow my body and mind just to rest and recover from hard training and hard racing. Um, I think that's how I've been able to stay injury free and, and uh, racing hard all these years is really taking that recovery season seriously. So it usually lasts about eight weeks. And I do a lot of weightlifting. I do a lot of like stand up paddling, hiking, biking, um, a lot of resting. And then if I feel like running, I'll run. If I want to go spend a day in the mountains, I will, but nothing structured. Nice. So, nice. Yeah. All right. Well, again, congrats on Thank the victory you. at Moab 240. I've done it without you. Well, I, yeah, I agree, but. <laughs> I there do want I do want to say congrats to you. Thank you. As the runner. We make a great team, Ed. We do. We, we do. should keep doing this. We should, yeah. We should keep doing this. And and you know that I cannot end this episode without bringing up the number one comment of all time. You know I have the ability Eddie to runs a marathon. to edit this, yes, right? Yes, people keep pushing that. Keep pushing the Eddie runs you, a marathon in 2024. It is so, going to happen. Why do you push that so much? Because the the YouTube series on that would be gold. I don't know. It about would be that. absolute gold. That is something I want to watch. <sighs> Eddie runs a marathon. That's the title. It's, mm. it's there. You can vote for that. Go ahead and share that. Send him a message. Follow him on Instagram. Make we sure you not. follow our Choose Strong yeah. podcast Instagram. Eddie runs that, by the way. I don't. Um, so when you respond, messages, comments, and stuff, know that that is all going to Eddie. So just encourage him. Keep encouraging him, guys. No need to do that. Okay. No need. Okay. Let's, let's finish this up. Let's go ahead and finish this up. Listeners, thank you for joining us for this very long episode. Yeah. If you enjoyed it, please Please leave us a review, share this on social media, give us those five stars. Every download, every share means so much to us. It absolutely matters. And we want to remind you that we are rooting for you in whatever goal journey that it is that you're working toward. Keep pushing forward, no matter the circumstance. We love you. We're cheering for you. And we just want to remind you, keep choosing strong in all that you do.